Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. It is Sunday, January 7th, 2018, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here on the East Coast. Welcome. I am joined by my co-host, Bill Stegel. Bill, how are you, my friend? Hey, buddy. Happy New Year. I'm doing well. How about you? Hey, Happy New Year, too. I am doing well. And uh, hey, year four for us doing this show. Say that again. This is year number four. Oh, wow. I can't believe that it's it's gone by that fast. We still have a lot of catching up to do to catch up with Eric and Owen, but wow, four years, that's amazing. I agree. Are you, uh, so what are you, you staying warm up us? there? Uh, I'm doing my best. Uh, hopefully this uh, cold snap is going to break this week and We'll be back to appropriate temperatures here for the mid-Atlantic. It's been hitting us pretty hard. Uh, as many of you know, I'm an emergency room nurse, and um, the flu has hit pretty hard here in my uh, region of the United States. So it's been uh, we've been overwhelmed for the past uh, three weeks with just uh, everyone coming in to, to be taken care of. So hopefully uh, the weather breaks and uh, work gets back to a much even tempo for me yeah i hope that's the case we uh here in texas also uh had that cold snap of of weather that came through we're we're out of it now back to pretty much our normal seasonal temps but um i I tell you i was after christmas i took uh, the family on a quick four-day vacation to mexico and it was 80 degrees there and when we flew into dallas fort worth airport it was 13 degrees so that was That was brutal. It's not happy to see that, but uh, that's moved out, and, and hopefully you guys get back to normal pretty soon. Fingers are crossed. So you have a couple things you want to talk about real quick. Yes, I do. Um, a couple of kind of announcements. Uh, one of them is I wanted to let everybody know that the 2018 Southeast Carpet Fest is going to be held uh, in Cape Coral, Florida on February 10th, and that's going to be at uh, Dave Palombo's place in Cape Coral. So uh, I'm going to try to get there. I'm looking at airline uh, reservations uh, as we speak, really, and I would encourage anybody that's in that region of the country, or even if you're not in that region of the country, to uh, to join us 
Ian Vassell has uh, kind of taken on a large role in putting that together. I think they've had Southeast Carpet Fest at least once or twice before. And uh, as you know, we like to promote the Carpet Fest for all the reasons that we've discussed on the show in the past. I'm going to try to get uh, Eric and Owen to get down there as well. Ian is actually going to be the uh, guest on Morelia Python Radio Tuesday night. So he'll have some info to share uh, about 2018 Southeast Carpet Fest, uh, I'm sure. So you can contact, contact him if anybody has questions about the venue or how to get there. Yeah, I could be ready for some Florida weather in a month or so. I'm, I'm telling you, make the trip. It, it'll be worth it. <laughs> uh, let's see. I also wanted to give, uh, and, I, and I've given this plug before today, Vrom, and I know that you uh, have used some of his equipment, but he sent me a little package uh, right towards the end of last year uh, with some neat stuff that I put together I think uh, the most recent thing that he has, I think he just put it out on his website yesterday or today, are his um, do-it-yourself kits for the Cambro tubs, the large Cambro tubs tubs that uh, I know you use and and I use as well. Um, So I got that. I put the frame together, installed it on a Cambro Cambro tub that I have here, and it's just it's fantastic. Uh, So. If anybody's interested in uh, that kit, you can contact uh, Dave Brahms. He's on Facebook, S3D Specialty Enclosure Designs, and I think his website SpecialtyEnclosureDesigns.com. He's got a bunch of neat little stuff to play with. I really like his stuff. He does, I think, almost all of it on a 3D printer, and uh, it's fun stuff. Yeah, very good stuff. I I have really... Uh, enjoyed using his perch holders. They've made my life uh, pretty easy as far as uh, you know, selecting a perch holder and and attaching it to a cage, and it works really well. I saw that he's doing a magnet type device for uh, securing the perch holders as well. That that's a pretty good idea to be able to pull those perch holders down and and uh, yes, you know, he, wipe down a cage and all that fun stuff. Yeah, he sent those to me, and I I installed them on the uh, little. Cambro cup that I put together, and it's it's really a neat concept. It makes it so there's absolutely no metal inside the cage. You don't need any screws, um, and the magnets just you know they do what you'd expect them to do. They hold those perch holders very well inside the cage. And uh, he also sent me I don't know if you've seen his little perch extensions that if uh, you, your traditional uh, horizontal perch these are little extensions that stick out at roughly 90 degree angles. Just gives your arboreal animal different options, different uh, ways that it can utilize the perch. They they look really clean and uh, they're very functional. So check those out too. Yeah, very nice. Good stuff. David's a good guy. He is. He does a lot for the hobby, and he's uh, he's very smart, and uh, I think he's in has some engineering background and he makes some, some fun toys. And uh, then the last, yes, uh, I wanted to, I wanted to give a little shout out to our friend, Gary Chivino. He uh, had agreed to take on much like, much like you did a couple of years ago. He took, he's taking on a troubled feeding neonate that I had um, from my clutch about three months ago. 
a little baby that he's working with. And uh, if he had any hair left, he would have pulled it out because this one's really testing his <laughs> condo skills. Um, but he's doing me a favor, and he's uh, he's never letting me forget uh, how much of a hassle it is for him to work with this baby. So I've got to give it back a little to him, but I appreciate him taking it on. He's also, you know, another good guy in our hobby, and uh, he's a guy kind of guy that would just uh, do anything if you if you asked him. So I do appreciate uh, the help that he's been giving me doing that. Good job. Yes, hair. I, that's why I have no hair. I keep chondros. Um It all it all fell out, or I pulled it out. I can't remember. They're uh, they're more troublesome than keeping kids sometimes. Uh, yeah, keeping both. I agree. Well, um, I know you are. We're both anxious to get our guests on um, because this is probably going to be a fairly lengthy show. Um, you know, we always try to have fun on these shows, but I can honestly say, and, and although I missed the first NIDO episode, this is probably going to be one of the more serious um, episodes. Uh, I, I know it'll be an enjoyable episode, but the NIDO virus that uh, a lot of people are dealing with now, uh, whether they know it or not, is a, you know, it's a serious subject. So I know we're going to learn uh, a lot about NIDO virus, and, and I hope we can dispel some myths and you know, basically uh, get some facts, what we know, what we don't know about the virus, um, you know, and just get some common sense guidelines about lots of things, you know, from husbandry to reproduction to buying and selling and all that kind of stuff. We're going to delve into all of it. So um, I'm really looking forward to it. Yep, me too. It's, uh, you know, Bill and I, we, we, we pick and select shows and um, people often come to us with, with good ideas about, you know, concepts for shows or what they would like to hear. And, you know, Bill and I went back and forth about doing a, another Night of Virus show because we have already had already addressed this. I thought pretty at least we did a pretty in-depth job with uh, having Cody and Pia and Susan on back in July. But uh, in the past, I guess, I guess maybe what eight weeks, maybe things have kind of. Uh, boiled over, I guess, in the Morelia and Condor community concerning nidovirus, and um, there's a lot of bad information or just misinformation being spread around, and um, and once bad information gets gets posted or presented, it's hard for people to forget that that's bad information, so we just want to kind of give uh, a recap of what we know about nidovirus, um, do some uh, basic biology of uh, basic microbiology and um, tackle the issue head on and hopefully people will use this for reference moving forward uh, when if they have to deal with nidovirus in their collection so one of the things we also wanted to do too is we <clears throat> another part of the show that Bill and I wanted to to address is we we wanted Justin Jewelland on our show and we want, really wanted to work him in as well because he's he's been a long time member of uh, the, the reptile industry and hobby. Um, he's been you know, working with Morelia. He works with Condros. Um, he's authored uh, research papers uh, on viruses. Uh, and he's also co-authored three very popular books in our hobby, including his latest one, um, which is specifically about green tree pythons. It's green tree pythons and natural history and captive maintenance. So we thought, what an, what an appropriate guest to have someone who's written a book about chondros 
uh, has a long time history in in the hobby and also is formally trained and studies viruses to, to help us on this journey of discovery. Absolutely. Looking forward to speaking with Let's bring him on. Yep. Okay, Justin Julander, welcome to GTP Keeper Radio. Thanks for. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate Thanks it. It's good to be here. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Um, uh, so let's let's start with the uh, you know the the normal things we normally ask our guests is you know just tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. I guess like uh, like most of us, I've I've been keeping reptiles. I've been interested in reptiles kind of my whole life. Uh, you know, from an early age on, and and uh, just kind of kept going and kept snowballing and building up. So, um, I I uh, kind of made the decision to to keep it as a hobby. So I'm not really a, a businessman, although I do have a little side business, uh, Australian addiction reptiles, and um, try to you know keep keep in with the the uh, different topics at hand or whatever, you know, keep, keep on the, the latest with reptiles of, uh, especially the ones I'm interested in. And that would be, you know, mainly Australian reptiles as indicated by my uh, business name. But uh, yeah, so I, I uh, kind of made that choice to keep it a hobby so I could keep it enjoyable and not have to worry about the stress of selling uh, snakes to feed my family and things like that. And um, so it gives me kind of that, uh, you know, freedom to to breed and enjoy the things I do, and not have to worry if I sell them or not. I can hoard everything I produce, or <laughs> uh, just kind of. So yeah, it's a I, I love it though, and I think I'll always have some sort of reptile or another in in my collection. Um, yeah. Hey Justin, you Excellent. alluded you. to you, you keeping uh, mostly Australian species. Can you just give us kind of a generalized overview of your collection? Sure. So um, early on, I kind of focused on the Morelia, especially the carpet pythons. Those were kind of my my big interests and got, got me interested, you know, seeing a big uh, black and yellow jungle carpet python kind of turned me on to those. And, and uh, it's gone uh, uphill ever since. <laughs> I've got most of the subspecies of carpet python. Um, I also really got into Antaresia, especially going over to Australia, seeing them in the wild. That kind of got my interest in Antaresia going, and I've got the you know, four species of Antaresia. There may be a fifth, but uh, I don't have that one yet. It's not really available outside of Australia. Um, and then, uh, you know, Aspidites, I've got the Womas and the Blackheads. Um, recently picked up some Western uh, Blackheaded Pythons, which are just fantastically nice. beautiful. Um, I've also started getting into some more lizard projects. I've been breeding some blue tongue skinks, northern blue tongues. Um, I'd love to get some some more species of blue tongue. They're a lot of fun to work with. And then uh, some acanthurus monitors, some uh, various geckos. I'm currently keeping some um, rough knobtail geckos in the first amia. And, uh, um, you know, a few ball python projects. I know that's a bad word on some shows, probably not here. But, not, you know, not this one. That, uh, not this one, I sure. <laughs> Yeah. I'm, this is a safe space for <laughs> admitting that. <laughs> it is a safe and, uh, space. <laughs> And uh, so I've, you know, I've got we, a few projects. We don't call ball pythons, though. We, we... <laughs> yeah, no, no. Royal, sorry, royal pythons. Yeah. Royals. There you go. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I think that uh, boils it down as far as yeah. oh, I've got some olive pythons as well. Some of the um, lyases. So nice. 
uh, trying to, I kind of like the, the diversity and, and of course, uh, green tree pythons, <laughs> you know, I can't forget that on this show. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I like the diversity, like having a lot of different, uh, species and, and types. Um, uh, so that's, but, but the pythons keep my focus for the most part. Um, they, they are really, you know, fairly easy to keep, especially with, you know, my busy schedule. Um, so, uh, pythons kind of do it, but the lizards are a little bit more work, but they, I'm starting to get more lizard projects for some reason. I guess I like, I'm a glutton <laughs> for punishment. But. So yeah. Great. That, Can you tell kind of boils us? It down, I guess. Nice. Can you tell us about your, your new book, Green Tree Pythons, Natural History and Captive Maintenance? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, so I, you know, found myself on my first trip to Australia with a group of uh, uh, reptile keepers, kind of some of the big names in the in the business, I guess. I was with uh, Rico, Alan Rapashi, um, a, a few other just, you know, kind of big big time guys, I guess. And we were uh, traveling up to the Cape York Peninsula of, of uh, Queensland. And I was lucky enough to kind of tag along with these. They had a, somebody drop out at the last minute. And since my, uh, the carpet Python book was just coming out, the one I wrote with uh, Nick Mutton, um, I, I uh, was invited to give a talk at this um, symposium. I'd met one of the organizers of the show in California and he said, Oh, if you're ever in Australia, look me up. And I, so I looked him up when I was headed to Australia. He said, well, can you change your flight plans a little bit to be in Cairns at this point? You can give a talk for our symposium on carpet pythons. And I thought, yeah, that sounds great. And he said, you know, you'd have to come up to the iron range with us. And I'm like, Oh man, twist my arm. That sounds rough. <laughs> um, so I was, <laughs> was able to go up there and it's, I mean, it's a, it's a long haul from Cairns to, uh, to, uh, the iron range, but you know, mostly dirt roads. So it was a little, a little bit of a rough, rough ride, but I'd actually come in a, a day earlier and was able to acclimate. Well, I got out to do a little bit of herping, found a few cool reptiles and kind of had started the Australia trip, you know, right. And then, uh, we went up to the iron range and, you know, it was just fantastic. Well, we were cruising along, we were headed to this um, tree to go look or it was it was called the smugglers tree or something like that where smugglers had had nailed these boards into a tree so they could climb up and collect these rare parrots that occur in the iron range of australia palm cockatoos eclectus parents those kind of things and so um they wanted to go check that tree out so on the way i thought hey why don't we look for green tree pythons because we were headed through you know the rainforest and um, I read this book called Stalking the Plume Serpent that kind of describes uh, the methods that the author undertook to look for green trees. And, it, you know, you just kind of cruise along in the vehicle and shine your light out the door and out the window and you can, you know, kind of pick them up. And sure enough, I see this glowing neon sign hanging from a small tree in the jungle. And we went out and we were able to check out our, you know, the a wild green tree python. And it was just beautiful, just perfect specimen, right? A white line of scales down the spine. It was fairly small, um, you know, and I, I guess I, I, I just got so just intrigued by that, you know, seeing, seeing these things in the wild and just give that appreciation and, and interest, I guess. It just sparked my interest, and I thought, I got to keep those. You know, and you always hear, oh, they're really difficult. They're kind of advanced keeper level snake. And so, and I remember my uh, business partner, Benson Morrill, had, 
had got one as a, you know, captive bred and born hatchling. And, you know, that's what, you know, that's supposed to be easy, right? If you get a captive born hatchling. And so we were keep, he was keeping it the way that all the, you know, care sheets and information implied that you should keep them. And it didn't last, you know, it died a few months after he, he got it. And, you know, so we thought, okay, maybe all the information's right. You know, they're too difficult to keep. And so, and then did, I uh, did buddy, was did talking did with Buddy produce. Did Buddy produce it? <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I can't remember who produced this one. This Ben might remember, but yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sure he didn't because it, it would have lasted longer, right? <laughs> but uh, so. So I thought, you know, I, I got, I, I listened or I, you know, fairly good friends with Terry Phillip and, and was listening to some things he was talking about and talking to him on the phone. Just really, I, I went up at the, the reptile gardens and visited him a couple of times. And, you know, he just had this uh, understanding of reptiles, you know, it was really great. He kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things. And, you know, he was the one that kind of first told me, you know, these things aren't that difficult to keep. Everybody's kind of overthinking it. We're, we're not letting the snakes be their snakes. And, and then I was thinking, you know, back to the Australia trip of, you know, the jungle was fairly cool. You know, it was, uh, I mean, it was kind of at the end of the, the cold, drier season. And so maybe that's part of it. You know, maybe it gets a little hotter, but I, I got to looking into that and seeing that no, the temperatures in the rainforests in Northern Australia and Southern New Guinea or, or New Guinea in general, you know, inside the forest, it's like 70 degrees pretty much year round, you know, and so I'm thinking, okay, you know, why are we keeping them at 90 degrees? Maybe that's part of the problem. You know, all these different things kind of add up. And, and, and then I started reading the scientific papers that have been published on green trees and thinking, you know, there's kind of a disconnect here between what's, what, what's, what they do in the wild and how we're keeping them in, in captivity. And so, you know, this is, this is important information that needs to be kind of put out there. And, you know, with my experience with the other two books on the carpet pythons and the children's python group, um, I thought, you know, that's kind of the role I've selected here is to take scientific information and kind of boil it down. So that was the main thrust of the book was to look at natural history of green tree pythons and kind of, uh, translate that into how we might improve our keeping in captivity and you know that's maybe a little egotistical for me to say and that's kind of why I roped Terry into co-authoring the book with me because he has a little more <laughs> clout I guess you'd say in the in the green tree python arena and uh, he's he's much more experienced than I am in keeping them in captivity you know I only have a, a couple of them so um you know, he was gracious enough to accept that after a lot of begging and pleading. But, um, so yeah, I was able to co-author the book with Terry and he had some great uh, input onto the, the book, but kind of my, my main part or portion of the book was the natural history. And that's kind of, you know, there's probably some areas in there, the locality stuff, all that kind of stuff uh, that might be a little weak and there might be some other areas that I could improve on in the future, maybe a second edition or something, but the natural history was kind of what I was you know, focused on with this book. So, okay. uh, Justin, I think you guys did a real nice job incorporating a, a lot of different aspects into the book. You, you mentioned the natural history, um, but you know, there's a lot of scientific stuff in there. If you're a, you know, a big science guy and there's also a lot of, updated husbandry stuff in there um if you're not so much a science guy you're just a hobbyist and you want to know give your green tree the best chance of of it uh, flourishing in captivity there's a lot of what i thought was up, kind of updated husbandry um maybe more um 
advanced or different thinking that uh, like was in Maxwell's book about as, as far as feeding and keeping and temperatures and uh, that kind of stuff. So I thought you guys did a nice job by uh, hitting a mix of, of a bunch of different things. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I uh, would also mention too, that we were lucky enough to get uh, Rico's hard drive that had information on um, uh, the, uh, sorry, um, um, my brain is shorting out here. Um, the the uh, method of reproduction, um, yeah, the, some of that kind of stuff was was in his, you know, in, in this hard drive. P- plenty of pictures galore. That's most of the books are pictures from Rico uh, that he took yeah. and had on his hard drive. And you know, the the book is really kind of a dedication, Rico. When we were on a trip to Darwin, we were kind of joking about that he needed to write a book and. And you know we needed we needed good information and, and some of this stuff that's kind of unknown to to most of the keepers and and uh, you know we joked with him about writing a book and he he was you know seriously thinking about it and amassing information he was a much much better uh, you know field herper and researcher than I was so he he did a he kind of was a good example for me in that regard taking notes and things when he'd find a snake and and so you know he's also done a lot with uh, ultrasound and some of those new advances and so that was another kind of fun thing i got to put in there was you know the ultrasound and and some of his data so you know people could build on that or use that as kind of a, a stepping stone to to improve our um, use of um, ultrasound and in uh, reproduction so i i definitely am uh indebted to rico and and the the information that he shared, you know, we, we did two separate trips to Australia together and, uh, you know, just talking with him, um, between trips and after trips, uh, just a wonderful guy. And I, I really think we need to, you know, keep his memory alive and keep kind of his, the, the kind of person he was, we need to be like more like him in regards to how, you know, we go about our dealings in the reptile area or community. Um, he was definitely exemplary. Yeah, absolutely. It was nice to see that you guys dedicated uh, the book to Rico. Um, Justin, where can our listeners get a copy of the book? Uh, probably the easiest way is through Amazon. Um, it's it's available there, and that's uh, I kind of did a did a trial with self publication this time around. To, um, the the two previous books were done through Eco Publishing, and that was a great experience as well. But I kind of wanted to see how it would go with self publishing and. So far, it's worked out pretty well. I don't have to ship books, and that makes it a lot easier. But I, I do uh, have an option on my website. If you'd like a signed copy, you can uh, order through my website and get a signed copy from me. Um, we can even have Terry sign it if you're uh, interested, but it includes a little bit more for the shipping back and forth and that kind of thing. So um, that's always an option as well. But, yeah, you can inquire uh, for a signed copy through my website. There's a little form to fill out. But, yeah. And I think it's uh, available around the world, so people in Europe and Australia can also order off their respective Amazon, uh, and they can get it through there. We don't have it in translated in any other languages, so um, that's uh, maybe something down the road we could try. Had a request, to, you know, <laughs> there was a request on one of the threads on Facebook to have have uh, information in German. That would be nice. I speak a bit of German, but. Um, <laughs> I joked that I'd do the show in German, so I should have. I forgot I, I was going to do that. I saw that. that. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Might have been a little confusing to some of the listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. 
All right. Well, thank uh, thank you so much, Justin, for coming on. Um, uh, buddy, why don't you introduce no Cody in uh, in PIV back onto our listeners? I, I think mo- you know a lot of our listeners, like you said, listen to our the first uh, show on Nido. Um, I wasn't there for that, so I haven't officially uh, met or been introduced to either one of these two folks. So what, let's bring them on. Sure, absolutely. Hey, Justin, real quick though, what is your website for someone who's interested in maybe looking at your collection or checking out your available books and that type of stuff? Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm kind of a, a terrible businessman, I guess. But the uh, <laughs> website's uh, australianaddiction.com, australianaddiction.com. And, uh, yeah, Great. it's Thank on you. The, the main main page. for. There's a link to the books, and you can click on that take you to the order form. Okay. Thank you. Good job. For remembering that. Yep. And uh, so let's bring on Cody and Pia. Cody and Pia, welcome back to GTP Keeper Radio. You guys joined me in June, and um, it was my first time talking to uh, Pia in person, but Cody and I talked a couple times previous to that. And, Cody, you were the person who directly informed me about the information you had acquired uh, through just some um, uh, – just being uh, – in the spirit of science and being an inquisitive person that uh, you you had discovered that you had nidovirus in the collection of chondros that you kept. Um, so welcome back. We're going to continue the conversation and uh, address some, some topics, and uh, hopefully you guys will join in. Are you there? Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, Hi guys. pleasure to be back. Awesome having you. Yeah, it's great to be back. Was it? Uh, Thank you. Was it really? Was it really yeah. in June? Was that? Was that when we were on last June? July. 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 Man, time flies. Wow. I can't even believe it. It's only. It feels like it's been a month, and it's a new year. Amazing. Yep. So, so let's there may get be people who. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Let's. Uh, but before we do. There may be people who uh, haven't listened to the uh, initial NIDO virus uh, episode. Uh, shame on you if you haven't. I mean, come on, Bill and I are rock stars <laughs> if you aren't listening to us. Um, just kidding. What else can are you, you doing guys just give a, Exactly. Please, can you give us a brief uh, uh, background, both of you, and just so we can inform our audience, please? Uh Perfect. You, um, all right. So uh, P and I talked about brief earlier today. Um, as as the <laughs> folks who probably listen to <laughs> listen to the first show, um, typically I don't speak in bullet points. I speak in paragraphs. Uh, so we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to just go through it real quick because then we could do another show and really kind of get into all the details of my my history and and, and all of that stuff. So. Uh, but I, um, I've always been into reptiles uh, as, a, as a small kid. Um, you know, everybody would say, um, you know, why are you into reptiles? And my, uh, my answer is I really don't know. I just always have been. Uh, Dave and Tracy Barker probably said it best in the Invisible Arc book because they get that question all the time. And I like their answer, so I'm going to go with this, is that I think they're beautiful. Why are you into reptiles? I think they're beautiful. I think they're fascinating. Um, I was always captivated by reptiles. 
Um, growing up in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, I was surrounded by desert. Uh, neighborhood kids were always in vacant lots catching banded geckos and spiny lizards hanging on the walls and stuff. And um, I just uh, was fascinated from the beginning, and it, it grew from there. Um, I, uh, I got into Condros in 2007 in Vegas, uh, met my best friend Forrest Fanning in a uh, uh, flea market pet shop. And um, he, he grew up in South Dakota in Rapid City. Um, I was wearing a Reptile Gardens T-shirt. And, uh, you know, as uh, many people know, Terry Phillip is the curator of reptiles at, um, at Reptile Gardens. And Forrest grew up there. So I was wearing that, that T-shirt that I got from Terry when uh, we both attended the 2006 uh, International Herb Symposium, so IHS. Terry and I hit it off right off the bat, um, and so I, I ended up getting his shirt at the uh, at the auction. Uh, Kim Anderson, uh, who was uh, 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 basically like a, a family member growing up, she was a co-owner of a pet store out there called Exotic Pets, and she pulled up Terry. Uh, he was just sitting down, probably having a beer, and said, "We're going to auction off this uh, Reptile Gardens T-shirt." And Terry's looking confused and basically rips the shirt right off of him. And Kim and I had this plan to bet back, you know, um, you know, bid back and forth on the shirt. So Kim won the shirt. She tossed it to me, uh, you know, and uh, it was all a, a big plan. Terry on the way um, through the lobby, shirtless, going to the elevator, pushed me against the wall, and he's like, "You asshole!" And you know, went, went up there. So. I had that shirt on when I met Forrest in 2007. I actually still, shame on me, have not been up to South Dakota to, to visit Terry at Reptile Garden, but uh, we've, we've been friends ever since. Well, Forrest, um, you know, and I hit it off, and we uh, decided that uh, Las Vegas, there wasn't a, a real big reptile scene. There wasn't a, you know, I wanted to uh, make my way into the professional realm of herpetology, and it just, that wasn't going to happen in Las Vegas. So uh, we figured that Florida had a real happening reptile scene and that would be a great place to start. So we moved to Florida in 2009. Um, I was lucky enough to get in my foot in the door with Medtox and Venom Laboratories and, and the Reptile Discovery Center. Carl Barden is the director there. He's the owner, founder, and director, and phenomenal human being. He got me... Um, my he basically gave my gave me a chance uh, in the professional realm of, of herpetology. So I started working with Carl, uh, and then I was fortunate enough to get into um, various different uh, reptile institutions. I worked at Glaze Herb Farm for a couple years as the uh, uh, the venomous reptile collection manager there. Uh, but for those of you who don't know uh, who Glaze Herb Farm is, I figure a lot of a lot of reptile pro people probably do, um, but they were one of the largest reptile dealers in the world. They, they specialized heavily in, in venomous reptiles. And so I was lucky enough to, to get in there with those guys and, and had a great time uh, from there. I, I, ended, I was also lucky enough to get hired on at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park. Um, I spent five years there from 2010 to 2015. Um, then I got a job offer for the curator of reptiles position at the Phoenix Herpetological Society in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, they have a large collection of crocodilians and venomous snakes. Uh, P and I moved out there to give it a go. 
Um, it just uh, wasn't in the cards. Uh, we were on two different pages as far as us and the facility goes. Not not P and I. We were on the same page about moving back to Florida. <laughs> uh, you know, so we we went out there. I'm glad you um, straightened that out, Cody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because we were both we were both on the same page to go down to Arizona because it seemed like. Uh, the next chapter in our life were, you know, because I've always loved Arizona um, and Scottsdale is a, a beautiful area and um, everything was good. We met a lot of great friends out there um, that, that we still talk to all the time, did a lot of, a lot of great herping and, uh, but it just didn't work out and that's okay. Um, we moved back. Pia was lucky enough to uh, um, get hired on at Disney um, uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom in uh, Orlando, Florida. I'm not going to steal her thunder too much, but she got the job while we were still in Arizona because we were looking, because when we were planning our move back, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do for a living. And when we move back, we have a five-acre property that we own in Melrose, Florida, which we luckily we did not sell when we moved. We just put it up for rent, so we basically just didn't uh, – renew our tenant's lease so we were able to move back into our property because I think that would have been probably pretty problematic not having a home coming back um and uh so she got the job so she was she had the income of bringing in the bread and butter and I was in a position to where I was able to go full-time with our reptile business and now I'm doing that um as a, as a full-time job so and uh and I'm oh. loving it like uh, like Justin was saying in the intro um, you know, he's, he's doing it as a, basically as a hobby. So he doesn't have to have the stress of selling animals and, and doing all of that, which is really nice. Cause I could tell you after having a job where, uh, you basically, as long as you don't get fired, you're guaranteed a paycheck. Um, that's pretty nice. I've never really respected working for any, for somebody else more than I do now, because if you don't hustle, um, you're not you're not putting food on the table, so it's it is it is a hard living, um, but it's a fun one. But I mean, you can you can have a really good week in sales, and then you can go weeks or longer with uh, with with nothing. So uh, you have to be really good at managing your money, and uh, but it, it's fun. So um, it's it's yeah, so it's really nice that you know that both you and Pia are able to you know be in the industry, so to speak. And, uh, and, uh, I know that's got its advantages and disadvantages of having, uh, reptiles as your, as your livelihood. But, uh, Pia, why don't you come on and tell us a little bit about, about yourself as well. And, and, uh, how you were kind of introduced, uh, to the subject of NIDO, because I know that you are, uh, intimately involved with, with, uh, the NIDO virus, uh, in your work. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, your beginnings and how you were introduced to all this mess. Yeah, absolutely. I would say you guys got the short version of uh, Cody's intro, so you guys are lucky. Um, but anyways, for me, um, I've, <laughs> I've, been, uh, I've been a veterinary technician for the last about 10 years, uh, working mostly in exotic and zoo um, kind of facilities. So, you know, Nidovirus, um, I used to work at the uh, University of Florida uh, zoological medicine department and that's where I got to work with uh, Elliot Jacobson who I'm sure you guys all know is um, an amazing virologist and you know veterinarian who is 
you know, a great friend and a, an amazing veterinarian. But I also got to work with uh, Jim Wellahan, who's another amazing virologist and uh, veterinarian. So there is kind of where I got my introduction in nidovirus, which was probably um, three or four years ago, or no, probably more than that. Um, but anyways, so that's kind of where I got my introduction. And kind of from there, it was, you know, it was always the kind of in the back of our mind of, this is a new virus kind of coming up, and we're not really sure what's going on. And, you know, we're seeing it in respiratory infections and, you know, ball pythons and things like that. And then they started seeing it in green tree pythons and kind of other species as well. But uh, as Cody's mentioned yeah. before, I'm I'm lucky enough to have my day job working at the most magical place on Earth. So um, I spend my days at Disney's Animal Kingdom um, as a veterinary technician. So I take care of the animals there. So it kind of depends on the day on what we get to see, but it's anywhere from – you know, rhinos and hippos and zebras and Komodo dragons and birds and monkeys and gorillas. Wow. And you name it, and kind of we, we get to see it. So, so I'm very fortunate That's... with that. Um, it's an amazing facility to work at, and the people there are top-notch. I've never met so many professional, um, you know, people there. So, so I'm happy to do that and still doing a little relief work for the University of Florida. Um, so I kind of, you know, still have my foot in the door there and, get to see all my good friends, which is nice. Um, and then kind of when my spare time, I get to help Cody with the facility at home with all the reptiles and stuff we have here. So that's kind of my little intro. Well, I hope you guys offer um, behind the scene uh, tours at the Disney facility to, um, to blog talk radio hosts. I, I'm sure I, <laughs> I, I know somebody who's going to probably get to end. So. <laughs> but, but awesome. yeah, it's, well, it's a pretty crazy, pretty it, amazing place. It it's great to have you guys here, and um, you know, I think most of the listeners know you guys were introduced to Nido uh, on a personal level. It's probably why you're so uh, on top of of things, and and I, we probably don't need to rehash the details of that. But you guys, um, like many of us now, are dealing with Nido in their Morelia uh, collections. So. Uh, Again, it's great to have everybody on. Uh, we're going to dig into this stuff now and get through as much stuff as we can. Um, I think maybe uh, we'll, we'll just start with Justin. And Justin, why don't why don't you kind of just get into a broad discussion about you know what a virus is and how it's different from a bacteria? Sure. Um, so maybe a, a little bit of background. So like I said, I was going to keep uh, reptiles kind of as a hobby, and so I needed to find a, a day job, I guess. And so I, uh, my my uncle um, said you ought to come check out our lab, and he had he had founded uh, the Institute for Antiviral Research at uh, Utah State University. And so I went by and checked stuff out, and it sounded really fascinating, you know, working with viruses and, and things like that. And so I I went and and thought, well, I'll give it a shot. I went up there for graduate school and worked uh, for the group while I was completing my PhD and then uh, jumped on as the spot opened up right as I finished my graduate work, and so I was able to stay, not have to go do a postdoc and make pennies, you know, for another few years as I was already doing as a grad student, and so kind of got to jump into a real job kind of right off the bat. And so I've been doing that since uh, 2005, uh, well, since 1999 when I started graduate school and working in there, and then as a as a principal investigator since uh, 2005. And so, you know, most of my day is spent thinking about viruses, although reptiles kind of distract me a lot of times thinking about those. So uh, it's nice <laughs> to have the two worlds mix. So when I was, uh, you know, preparing for the show, I was looking into into some of the things involved with nidovirus, some of the more basic biology. So 
uh, I guess basically a, a virus is an intracellular an obligate intracellular parasite. Um, it's you know debatable whether they're alive or not. Um, you know they don't they, they have to use the machinery of our own cells to replicate themselves. Um, I guess a lot of bacteria do the same kind of thing, but uh, their basic make makeup might uh, differentiate them a little bit. So bacteria generally have a cell wall, and I don't believe any viruses have a cell wall. Um, so viruses are very simple in a lot of ways. They they have you know a strand of uh, genetic material, and and viruses have found a way to utilize uh, single-stranded RNA as their uh, genetic material, and so that's kind of different than us, where we have DNA for our genetic material. We have RNA as an intermediate. They there are uh, many viruses, including the nidoviruses, that use uh, positive sense strand RNA that have a negative sense strand RNA as an intermediate. So basically, a, a virus has uh, a kind of a coating uh, or a shell around its genetic material, and that shell contains uh, receptors that can bind to different uh, cells in our body. So the receptors will uh, attach the virus to a cell. It will be internalized by the cell, and then either you know it will undergo its viral replication. Uh, for nidoviruses and other viruses that I work with in the lab, which are RNA viruses, um, they'll actually dump their uh, RNA genome into the cytoplasm of a cell. So they don't even really involve the nucleus very much in their replication cycle. And then they'll kind of take over the cell and, and utilize the, the you know, enzymes and other proteins in the cell to help them replicate their genome. So they, they kind of let the cell do that for them. And they trick the cell into doing that. And they also um, inhibit the cell's uh, different uh, defenses. So they have, you know, pretty, pretty uh, sophisticated methods for how small they are. Um, so a lot of their proteins have multiple functions. Uh, one of the, you know, their proteins might replicate their their gen genetic material, um, and at the same time will inhibit the, you know, the interferon response of the cell, the, the natural host defense response, and uh, and so they have kind of a Swiss Army knife of different proteins that have several different functions. So it's really pretty interesting and kind of fun to work with these things, but it's very difficult to understand them, and it's even more difficult to treat them and prevent them because they are in, inside the cell. So you run into the the problem of having to, you know, fight a, uh, something that's using your own cellular uh, proteins to to do its job. So, um, you know, just uh, just kind of on a broad topic, you know, when we think of viruses, mm -hmm. a lot of people think of human viruses, you know, like the common cold is a virus and it's a virus sure. that humans or mammals can get and they can fight that virus and they the immune system can eventually defeat that virus. Um, and then there's other mm -hmm. viruses like the herpes virus or the AIDS virus that, you know, you never the human body never really you know, defeats it. It's, once it's there, it's kind of sure. there, and it can be dormant or latent. What, you know, what, why is that the case? Why are some viruses uh, easily defeated by the uh, an animal's immune system, and why do others seem to take over and be there for the lifetime of the animal? <laughs> that is a great question, and, and you know, there's, it's, it's kind of a very difficult answer, and I guess that's why I have a job is to try to answer some of those questions. You know, um, uh, a lot of things are, are unknown with viruses, and it's very difficult to find out. Uh, a lot of 
animal models or cell models don't replicate what happens inside of a human. So it's really kind of tricky to answer those questions. But, you know, various various viral groups, like you mentioned, herpes, you know, they have ways, the, the herpes virus has a way to hide out kind of in our uh, neuronal cells. And neurons are kind of protected from the immune system. You don't want to go destroying neuron cells fighting a virus because you might end up brain dead or something. There's a really kind of an intricate balance between you know, homeostasis in our bodies. So, you know, we, we want to be free of, of pathogens, but we also don't want to destroy ourselves getting rid of the virus because they're within our cells. And mm-hmm. so, you know, like, uh, for example, hepatitis, uh, you know, you're, this, some, some viruses will invade the liver and your body can go through and just wipe out your, your, a lot of your liver cells because there's such a high turnover of liver cells, but the virus sometimes can replicate even faster than the, the immune system can keep up with. And finally, the immune system says, ah, what, what, you know, we've tried, we can't get rid of it. You know, we're done. And it almost gets recognized as self and kind of becomes the normal, (laughs) you know, homeostasis. Now you've got a viral infection. And so a lot of those uh, viruses like hepatitis C or hepatitis B can be chronic inside your liver because your immune system just eventually gives up. So um, it's really hard to say how that happens or what, what mechanisms. Other viruses like even like West Nile virus, you know, you, we think of that uh, um, virus as something that can be cleared and, and removed from our system. But we've also discovered that they the, the West Nile virus can kind of hide out in, in neuronal cells in, in our brain and, and, mm-hmm. and p- potentially other areas. And so you have these small little pockets of virus hiding out and and we don't really know what they're doing, if they're even replicating or if they're just, you know, kind of dorm- in some kind of dormant state. It's really hard to, to understand, you know, how these viruses are hiding out. But it's amazing that something so small and just such a small genome can, can kind of win, you know, against re- our bodies. Re- re- havoc. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's just fascinating. So virology is a really interesting field that never is boring and, and you know there's a lot of uh, fun things to discover here so but that's that's a you know that's a tricky thing is um you know some viruses are cleared easy like, like the common cold um i think the the virus there, there's a balance usually between the virus the virus doesn't want to kill the host because the host is what is replicating it and, and you know making new viruses and so if if the virus just comes in and wipes out the host like uh, say an ebola infection or something you know just kills the person very rapidly and and actually that's that's the case with one of the relatives of nidovirus the sars virus you probably remember the sars outbreaks you know several years ago a couple maybe a decade or more ago um sars came through and everybody was scared because it was so pathogenic but that actually was a good thing to fight the virus because all you had to do was isolate a person and once the virus kind of ran its course that you know the person might die but they're probably not going to spread it any further because we realize that you know the virus needs to be actively replicating to be spread and during the in you know infectious stage which didn't last very long and so we could kind of isolate people and the virus would pass and then they could you know Go go about their business, and they wouldn't be uh, transmitting the virus anymore. Um, yeah, very so, very similar know, to the yeah. uh, very similar like the bubonic plague. You know, when that outbreak happened, it it decimated you know hundreds of thousands of people. But once it ran its course, it ran its course, and it's mm-hmm. looking like natovirus is not like that. Uh, unfortunately, 
Well, and that's that's a tricky thing. It's, you know, pretty early in the game. So there's a lot to learn about, you know, what the virus does, you know, where it where it hangs out, if it if it can kind of find one of these places to hide out from the immune system or overwhelm the immune system. Um, there's a lot of questions to be answered. And what, what's really kind of, you know, cool from a virologist standpoint is this is the longest RNA genome virus that's been discovered so far. So it's, wow. you know, since, since they, you know, got it all sequenced out and figured out, um, you know, we, we know it's the longest uh, virus uh, that has a positive sense RNA strand. So that's kind of a, a geeky a fun fact, I guess, that, you know, we've now snakes have the longest uh, virus that, uh, that has an RNA genome. So um, we're going to go into yeah, still, we're, we're, we're going to go into more into that, and, and I, we definitely want to get your take on that because I think that may have um, something to do with the testing of nidovirus, which we want to talk about yeah. here in a little bit. Um, but we did want to kind of uh, continue down this this path about um, you know antibiotics, and we you know we've had people on Facebook. You know, how, how do you treat nidovirus? Well, you know, what can we do to treat nidovirus? And, and I think, um, Pia, you've run into, into that a lot, I'm sure. You've been very active on the social media platforms when people uh, are just newly discovering the term nidovirus, and so they're, they're wanting some information. And, of course, the main thing they want to know is how, is how it's treated. So, Pia, maybe you can give us some of your, um, you know, what you've heard and maybe some myths about using antibiotics to treat NIDO or to stabilize NIDO or, or treatment of NIDOvirus. Yeah, so um, unfortunately there's no real good antiviral medications for any reptiles for kind of any viruses that I know about or that I've heard about. Um, there are some kind of things they've tried kind of in the past, but it hasn't really been with uh, kind of good results. But for so for nidovirus, um, there, is, there isn't any antibiotics you can treat nidovirus because obviously it's an antibiotic which treats bacteria and, you know, nidovirus is a virus so it kind of doesn't really match. But what happens a lot of times is there are secondary bacterial infections. So if you, and I'm kind of prefacing this with, if you have a sick snake, take them to a veterinarian. There's no need to try to be your own shotgun, you know, medicating at home, trying to figure it out because there are so many, you know, antibiotic resistance, there's so many different bacteria, there's so many different things that, you know, you know, kind of generally it's it's hard to be able just to look at a snake and say, oh, it has a respiratory and it's, you know, it, it might have nidovirus, but it might have, you know, a handful of different bacterias or things like that. You would, you need to have a culture and sensitivity to figure out what it is. Um, but a lot of times we do see kind of your basic, you know, opportunistic um, pseudomonas and things like that that will be um, in these snakes that are kind of suffering from nidovirus, but also suffering from a bacterial overgrowth as well. Um, so if you're, you know, the animal is sick, take them to a vet, get a, you know, full diagnostic workup, you know, do culture and sensitivity so you know what bacteria you're looking at and what, um, what antibiotic will work. So with our collection that we had, um, we had animals that were um, resistant to amikacin and they were resistant to, you know, other medications. So you kind of have to make sure you're, you're knowing kind of what you're, what you're trying to kind of aim at. Um, Pia, were those animals? Were, were, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Were those animals that no, were no. diagnosed with nidovirus, but then they had a secondary bacterial infection? Is that when you say they were resistant yeah. to amikacin? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. They were in it, they were already um, positive for nidovirus. Yeah. They were already showing respiratory um, symptoms of wheezing and kind of 
the general kind of respiratory things that we see with these green tree pythons. Um, and when we did, so we did uh, lung washes for culture and sensitivity on, um, I want to say probably four or five animals. Um, you know, this was a year and a half ago, so my, my, my brain may not be uh, as sharp as it once was. Sure. But, um, like, they were, um, I know a few of them were, you know, uh, resistant to amikacin. Some of them were resistant to, you know, some of the other antibiotics that we would use. Um, but, yeah, so that's why it's really important. Um, and even I kind of want to put a little um, bug in everybody's ear that, you know, everybody thinks um, Fortaz or Ceftazidime is, you know, the new wonder drug because, you know, Batril has kind of been um, kind of shunned away. But there's there are now um, signs that uh, there are uh, – uh, septazidine um, antibiotic resistance too. So, you, so you know sure. that's kind of where I'm like, you need to make sure that if you have a, if you have an animal that's sick, take them to a vet. This is why veterinarians do what they do, and they're not trying to you know make money off of people. They're trying to do the best thing for your animals. So, um, but one other thing I was going to say is a lot of these nidoviruses we're seeing uh, co-infections with mycoplasma, which is another uh, bacteria that is kind of another kind of big one that you've got to know about, and you can't just you know. Uh, you know, do a culture and sensitivity for that one. A lot of times you have to do PCR or uh, acid fasting and things like that. So, um, so yes, yeah, so, I mean, there is there are some treatments to treat kind of the secondary and the supportive care, but um, for actual nidovirus, there is no there's no magic pill. There's no magic thing that we know of yet. But but we do have some you know some positive um, kind of things with our collection that we've seen. So I'll kind of go over that in a little bit later. That we've had some animals go from positive to negative without any treatment. So. Oh wow. Wow, that's that's fantastic news. Yeah, definitely we want to we want to get into that. Do you happen to know are they doing any kind of research about producing some antivirals in reptiles? Maybe Justin uh, would know this as well. You, we have antivirals for human beings that are limited, but, but we have them. Are are they are they trying to work on an antiviral in reptiles? I would say I know that people have tried, or they're they're talking about kind of doing it. Um, the big one I know right now is kind of the IBD. Um, but it's it's hard to be able to get an antiviral that works for reptiles just because of their physiology, the virus physiology, and kind of the all the all encompassing biology of of viruses and animals and things like that. It makes it a lot harder to be able to get these things to to kind of work together. But I mean, Justin, I'm sure you can also kind of interject as well. <laughs> yeah, that's what, my day job is mainly spent looking for antivirals for human diseases, and we. Uh, our, our funding has re- reached over $100 million over the last uh, probably 20 years. And so, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to identify antivirals because you've got, you know, like I said, these utilize our hosts, uh, the, the host cells to replicate their genome. So you're, when you're fighting a virus, a lot of times you, you run into toxicity because you're fighting your own cells uh, in, in some cases. So you might find a, an antiviral that works great you know, in cell culture and, and can defeat the virus in cell culture, but then you move into animal models and realize there's toxicity associated with that. And so it kind of gets abandoned because of that. Um, so it's a very difficult prospect to find uh, antivirals for human diseases. And, and a lot of money is spent doing that and um, kind of, you know, so, so it's even harder to think that there's a very good program looking at reptile viruses. And especially since there aren't very many, uh, reptile viruses known. I think it's a little bit early in the nidovirus game to look at uh, antivirals at this point until we have a better understanding of the natural history of the virus. But I, I 
doubt there's a huge effort, but there probably is some funding out there that can be done. I actually kind of trying to throw my ring, uh, hat in the ring to say you know, I might be able to uh, help with that because we have a very large database of, of compounds that have been shown to have activity against human viruses, and we might be able to use that uh, to, to screen against you know, some of these uh, reptilian viruses that, that we can replicate in cell culture. So that, that's a possibility in the future, but I think right now it's probably in its infancy and, and needs some, some more information before we can proceed too far with that. Yeah, I was going to touch as well that there is not a lot of um, kind of money and grants and things going into antivirals with um, with reptiles. So it's kind of a, you know, you got to have a little more, you know, big bucks and kind of reason to, to be doing that kind of stuff. So I, I mean, I'll go along those lines. It, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're 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 in discussion to see we, what we can do and try to mix my uh, day job with my night job. But uh, it it would be uh, maybe a, a more um, feasible option would be to generate a a vaccine. Um, vac- did, we, did, we, did we lose Justin? Are you still there? Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes. Hello? Yeah? Okay. So um, veterinary vaccines might be a, a better option compared with antivirals. So um, like, we, like we see with uh, um, human viruses, um, and, and Pia kind of alluded to with bacteria, viruses are very good at uh, becoming resistant to antiviral drugs. So, you know, we spend, you know, millions of dollars and you know, hundreds of millions of dollars looking for identifying antivirals. Once we find one, we get it developed and in the, in the clinic and it's, if it's used improperly or even if it's used properly, the viruses have a lot of different mechanisms to avoid that or to, to change. So they're, they're more resilient to that, uh, uh, antiviral. And so, I mean, even if you do discover one, it probably won't, uh, work for very long, uh, Potentially, especially if it's just one drug that you're using, sometimes combinations can kind of overcome that. But that should be also kept in mind. But vaccines might be a way to to get around that because um, that's one of the best ways to control a virus infection is a vaccine to prevent it rather than. And so, you know, we might be able to uh, down the road have have some have that as an option. Justin, can you? Um... NIDA virus has been described as an enveloped virus, enveloped virus. Can you explain what what exactly does that mean to the everyday hobbyists? Yeah, that's actually uh, good news for us in a lot of ways. So enveloped viruses, that, that refers to part of their replication cycle. When they the, the virus will enter the cell, will, you know, kind of coerce the cell or however you want to picture that to make its proteins. And those proteins are both uh, structural and non-structural proteins that are made. The structural proteins go on to make the new progeny virus, the new uh, viruses, and that, that kind of coats their RNA and things like that and is the outer shell. And they'll actually deposit those proteins, those viral proteins. The cell will be tricked into depositing those on the surface uh, or envelope of the cell. And then as the virus buds out of the cell, it will kind of get a coating of envelope from the cell. So in some ways, it it takes a part of your cell with it as it exits the cell. And so um, that kind of gives it a little bit of protection, but it also allows it to bind 
you know, and, and bind to the cells and, and fuse with cell membranes, you know, of, uh, within the cell once they enter another cell. But uh, envelope viruses are usually a little easier to disinfect. So um, a lot of the viruses we worked are enveloped, and so when we decontaminate the lab and things like that, we use a 70% ethanol solution, so 70% um, alcohol solution to disinfect everything. And that works really well because that envelope is really sensitive to alcohol. Uh, alcohols. Alcohol will disrupt the envelope. And so, you know, we just spray ourselves down. And so when you're, you know, if you have a nidovirus infection in your colony, if you want to clean out a cage, it should be pretty easy to disinfect, to get rid of that nidovirus on surfaces like your cage walls or things like that using, um, you know, alcohol or bleach or something like that that will disrupt that uh, membrane of the of the virus. Um, that's, uh, the that's one that's thing, though. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Justin. Oh, one, one thing to keep in mind in regards to disinfection, though, is a lot of times these viruses are encased in kind of a mucus, and so you might need to scrub through you know any mucal deposits that are that are on the walls or, some, or the cage to to disinfect. But the, an envelope virus typically doesn't last long outside of the host unless it's protected by you know like a mucus uh, secretion or something like that. That that's uh, that that is excellent news. Um, can you throw out just some other uh, materials other than the alcohol, bleach? You know, some of the common um, uh, cleaners that are that are that keepers use. I mean, most of those, I'm assuming, will destroy the nidovirus on, on cage walls or water bowls. I, I should have looked more into that. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, there's there's other things that definitely can have an effect on the the cell, you know, the mem the the membranous covering, the covering, the envelope covering of the of the virus. But uh, specifically, I'm not exactly sure which ones do and don't as far as that goes. But you know, maybe Pia, maybe Pia knows or yeah. or Cody. Yeah, what, what say, have you got? Um, as far as as far as I've heard from the um, virologists that I've spoken to, the um, they've said basically any bleach solutions, um, quaternary ammonias, um, alcohols, things like that will basically should kill the virus on contact or, um, you know, like if you're cleaning a cage that has obviously mucus and things like that, those things, you know, become inactivated on mucus. So you'd have to clean kind of multiple times just to make sure that the virus is killed, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what about clothing? I was gonna say what about clothing? You know, is it is the virus able to, you know, attach to, you know, a keeper's clothing and then be you know, transferred that way or is it you know, hand washing will take care of that? What you know Yes, I mean it's yeah. it's basically like you would be a fomite. If if say you have a snake that has you know, it's positive for nidovirus, and it's shedding the virus, and they're crawling all over your body. They're on your shirt. They're on your arm. Um, you know, wherever they kind of touch, that would that could the virus can be deposited onto you. Um, it's probably not very hardy in the environment. So if you wash your hands, you wash your clothes, you you know, take a shower, those kind of things, um, those ones should kind of eliminate any kind of uh, spreading of disease. So kind of um, Cody and I. Have policy that we do with our collection. So I work all the NIDO animals and Cody works the rest of the collection. So when I, you know, I go in, 
I work the NIDO animals. I wear different clothes. I wear different shoes. Um, and when I'm done, I take a full shower. The clothes get washed, things like that. So we're trying to make sure that, you know, just basic kind of sanitary type things. You know, a lot of people want to go overboard with a, a million different things, but just basic good husbandry, good sanitary practices, good, good like, you know, cross-contamination type stuff is basically what you need to look for. Excellent. I, yeah, I would I also – yeah, go ahead. I, I would I would mention too is you know when when you think about transmission and, and yourself as a fomite or your clothes or whatever, um, you know you, you have to think about dose too, infectious dose. You know we don't really know how much. Like, does it just take one virus particle or does it take a a thousand virus particles to infect an animal? And so that's you know if, if you have you know nido on your glove and you touch an animal and you know how much dose are they going to get from that object and is that going to be enough to to get them infected so that's one of the questions that needs to be answered too is what kind of infectious dose would it take to infect an, a new animal and uh you know if, if it requires a, a certain amount so um you know I, I guess yeah again i think i think pia made a good point in saying don't go overboard you know don't yeah. don't get too don't, don't put it you know, don't i, I guess a you can't too fastidious Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah. in the lab, we do that as a precaution because it, uh, you know, we'll, we'll wear shoe coverings and things like that. There's different things you can do to prevent those kind of fomite transfers to other areas and things. But in reality, you know, it, it might take a little bit more than a little bit of mucus on your glove to, to transmit it. But I think just having that idea of I could transmit it, so I'm going to take those precautions regardless um, as long as it's within reason and you're not spending thousands of dollars on a new, you know, set of clothes every time you go near a NIDO animal. <laughs> there, there has to be a little bit of a balance there. Yeah. So would you guys say, you know, if somebody asks you, is NIDO virus, is it, is it an airborne pathogen? I mean, is the answer to that yes or no or we're not sure? Or is it contact only or secretions? I think it's too early to say at this point. I mean, I, I don't know that we have that information or that answer. That's another thing that's somewhat difficult to to demonstrate, you know, especially taking regards, you know, the amount of virus. We don't know how much virus is being shed, um, if it's, you know, how it would be aerosolized or how long it survives in the environment, like Pia was saying. Um, so it, it's too early to call. There's a potential, but I don't think we have that answer yet. Maybe P has more information. Yeah, I say I don't think we have specifically that answer, but I think we we do know that it's in oral secretions. Um, I think they've also been able to pick it up in feces, but it's um, the theory that I heard is that you know the the virus is basically coming up from the respiratory secretions. They're swallowing those secretions, and the virus is basically going through their respiratory tract or their digestive tract, excuse me, and then going out kind of in the feces. So it can be found that way as well. But I think aerosolize is, is more just more of a mechanism than an actual kind of transmission mode. It's more, you know, the, the virus is in, as far as we know, in the respiratory tract. And if, you know, you know when they get angry, they do a nice big kind of exhale. And, and, you know, if they're blowing bubbles or if they're having kind of, you know, excess mucus, and they're going to be breathing out all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's possible and it's likely that probably, you know, airborne, I'm using air quotes you guys can't see, but it's um, it's likely that it can be aerosolized, but I don't know if it's necessarily like airborne. But I, I will say that with our collection, 
um, and Cody can probably talk a little bit more about this, is that when we had it, um, we had our first uh, quarantined animals. We had a, a, the group of green tree pythons that were quarantined in our living room, um, and then we had snakes kind of off to the dining room, which was probably, you know, I don't know, 30 feet. I'm probably terrible with, um, with measurements, but um, we did see transmission from one to another. Could it have been, you know, transmission from, you know, clothes, tongs, shoes, something else possible, but um, but it, it did seem that it was more of a kind of a in-the-air respiratory possible thing. So but it, it is definitely a little too early to tell, but I think we, we do have a lot more kind of concrete information, you know, now than we probably did a year and a half ago. Right. Um, Jason Stevens, who I think most of the people um, on this uh, show know who Jason is, he had a question. He's recently uh, disclosed that he has NIDO in his collection. I think like a lot of long-term Morelia keepers, uh, nothing has come in or out of his collection in a long time, and he spot-tested some of his animals that were NIDO-positive, and his question was basically, you know, what kind of evidence is there to support that NIDO is causing respiratory infections as opposed to just a correlation um, with respiratory infections? In other words, you know, if an animal comes down with a respiratory infection, is it, you know, is there ample evidence to suggest that it is, that NIDO is absolutely causing that respiratory infection as opposed to a bacterial infection and nidovirus just happens to be there. Uh, I guess yeah, I can I kind of touch on that. Um, oh, go ahead, Justin. I'll let you go first. No, I'll go after you. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to just kind of um, talk about the so the researchers that we've been working with um, at the Colorado State University. Um, they just did a uh, inoculation study with uh, ball pythons. So. Uh, the paper will be out hopefully in the next week or so, um, so we'll have more uh, concrete evidence of if or I should I will I'll, if nidovirus causes um, respiratory infection or vice versa. So I think it's um, mm-hmm. it's pretty strong evidence that it 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 was causing. So it's nido first, then the respiratory <clears throat> versus you know they had a right. weakened immune system kind of thing, and then they got the nido, and then they got the respiratory. So um, right. So. So, so we'll, basically, we'll what see, you're doing, we'll see what the new. Yeah, and that and that's that's obviously that's obviously the way that you prove that you take a healthy animal that you know is negative mm-hmm. for NIDO, you introduce NIDO to that animal, and then you see if it develops a respiratory infection. Is that yeah. is that what that and study then, essentially did? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they um, and we were Cody and I were lucky enough. Uh, so my family is in Colorado, so we went to Colorado for Christmas and got to meet up with the researchers there and you know, talk to them and tour the lab since everything we've been doing is basically over, you know, phone calls and emails. So it was nice to actually meet them face-to-face. But um, they let us know that they just did this uh, inoculation study that was very um, good information and good evidence um, that they're going to be present or have published here in the next couple of weeks. So I can't – I haven't gotten awesome. to read the paper. I just got to talk to them about it. So we'll we'll see what the paper kind of dives into. You're not going to be a spoiler, huh? Yeah. Well, I I haven't read the paper yet, so I'm I'm still excited to see it. So um, it's here. Hold on, I can. I think I have the title. It's uh, respiratory disease in ball pythons experimentally infected with the ball python nidovirus. 
Um, it's going to be in the Journal of Virology, hopefully in the next uh, week or two. So, um, granted, it is in ball pythons, but as we kind of know, the ball python nidovirus is similar to the Morelia um, viridis nidovirus, which is similar to the, you know, Indian rock, the Indian rock uh, python nidovirus as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I I would also uh, say too, you know, in in a lot of viral infections. Um, well, uh, so so what we do know, what we have seen with with the various publications, is that nidovirus infecting cells will cause um, the cells to kind of um, expand and, and kind of multiply on top of each other. What's the term for that? Uh, Pia, uh, maybe you remember, but <laughs> per, yeah, they proliferate the cells and uh, and kind of cause a thickening of the airway uh, epithelial cells. And so your your epithelial cells that line your where, where you have that exchange of oxygen, carbon dioxide within your lungs. Um, and so if, if the virus is causing those, the, that proliferation of the, of the cells and the thickening of the epithelial layers, it's going to make respiration a little more difficult. Um, then you've got, uh, you know, increased mucus production that's been, been observed. And so I can imagine if you have thicker epithelial layers and, and increased mucus production is probably going to result in some kind of respiratory distress and disease. And so it could just be the virus itself. Now, a lot of times viruses and, and bacteria kind of piggyback on each other, especially uh, bacteria after a virus infection, because the virus kind of, like I said, uh, can can take out parts of the immune system and can in inhibit your, your immune system. Um, other other viruses I work with in, in you know human infections, they the immune system is actually what's doing the damage for the most part in trying to get rid of the virus, and so it can actually be your immune system. And so treatments with various immune modulators can reduce the severity of disease. So you know it could be a lot of different things kind of hand in hand. So it's hard to say. Um, a great example of that is the flu of 1918 that took out you know. A, a, ton of people. It was one of the most lethal viral infections on record. And, uh, and they have discovered since then, you know, because they didn't have a lot of the tools back in 1918 to, to kind of research this stuff. Since then, they've discovered that most people that died had a secondary bacterial infection. So, and, and when they've done experimental infections with the, the resurrected 1918 flu virus, um, it doesn't cause that severe disease on its own. So maybe animals just infected with NIDO um, won't have that severe respiratory disease, but maybe they will. And I think this paper that Pia referenced is going to be a great step in that direction, kind of uh, answering Koch's or, or you know the Koch's postulate question of does just infection with NIDO cause that respiratory disease, or do you need other factors involved? And that, that becomes a little uh, difficult to answer in some ways because the the you know any living organism is going to have bacteria throughout its you know various tracts and so you know it's hard yep. to say if if that's not adding to it so but but you know great step in the right direction and, and it should be very informative I'm excited to see that paper. Wow, just a, a lot of stuff uh, you know a lot of stuff to digest and a lot of. Uh, you know, theory still out there. Um, you know, I had a feeling doing this show, we were going to introduce just as many new questions as we would answers. Um, but it's really, it's really great that we're seeing, you know, the research is being done. Um, 
you know, tend uh, to see, I tend to see, at least in medicine, you know, uh, the money flows or the research flows where the money is. And, um, you know, I'd really like to see a lot of, a lot of this stuff continue, you know, to get funded so, so we can get the answers to the questions that we're asking tonight. I'd also throw in there too. Um, so nidovirus is is within the same uh, group of virus. Well, it, it's it's it, within the same family, uh, nidovirales, um, uh, that shares you know with the, with SARS and MERS. MERS is more of the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Um, most of the infections caused by these viruses are respiratory infections. So we could kind of get a lot of uh, potential insight from other related viruses like SARS if you read up in the SARS literature and, and so that might be uh, uh, you know something that would help us maybe better understand um, the respiratory infection in our snakes that we learn about you know with with uh, related viruses that's a yeah potential fruitful area uh, I have a question All for right. you guys so um Really, two questions, really. What's the difference between a symptomatic animal and an asymptomatic animal? And is an asymptomatic animal immune to the virus? That's a good question. I, again, you know, I, I don't think we have a lot of answers, but, but uh, you know, symptomatic, and I think you can have an, an infected uh, individual that is replicating the virus, and the virus is present, and they can be completely asymptomatic. Um, I've been doing a lot of research in the last year with Zika virus, and I'm sure everybody's heard, you know, the, the recent Zika virus outbreaks and, and kind of the problems that are going along with that. Um, maybe some of the listeners have had Zika virus from, you know, visiting these places where it's endemic. But uh, probably 70% of cases of, of Zika virus-infected people don't know they have the virus. And so even some of those have even transmitted the virus further. So, for example, a man will go down to South America, get infected, come home, won't have any symptoms, won't have any issues. He'll, you know, uh, visit his wife and, and uh, have a little intercourse there, and he'll transmit the virus to her. And a few, you know, weeks later she has some symptoms of Zika virus when she was never in that area or, you know, exposed to the virus or a mosquito bite. And so, you know, he was asymptomatic, but he passed that virus on even up to several months after after he'd returned and didn't even know he was infected. And so you can be asymptomatic and still have a uh, replication, viral replication and also be uh, able to transmit the virus. Um, we're not sure if that's the case with, with nidovirus and, and, you know, the, these python nidoviruses. But, you know, on the converse side, you know, the immune system may clear the virus, get rid of all the viral particles, and, you know, um, after a, either a symptomatic or asymptomatic case, you, you'll, you'll eventually clear the virus and you will be negative for the virus. But uh, viruses, like I said, have a good way, uh, have many ways of hiding out in your, in your body and, and in the body of the snakes, I guess, in this case, to, um, and can kind of escape those immune mechanisms. So, it's, yeah, it's hard to say. Okay. Pia, I was really yeah, interested. Go ahead, Pia. Oh, I was going to just say, um, yes, I mean, it's basically asymptomatic or subclinical. We don't really know which kind of, which one it is. But it's, okay. And that's kind of the, you know, we're not trying to, 
you know, talk about this and create like a mass panic with everybody. It's more just trying to get, you know, more awareness, more like more information, more um, kind of, you know, experience out on what we're seeing. And so that's kind of, you know, we have, you know, a pretty good collection of positive and negative animals uh, now, you know, more negative than we have positive. But um, but we have seen a lot of animals that are, you know, asymptomatic or, you know, subclinical. We kind of don't know if they're shedding the virus or not or, or kind of how exactly that, um, that mechanism works. But, um, but that's kind of the thing is if you have an animal that is asymptomatic, that is positive, there is that chance that it is spreading the virus. And that's kind of where we were hoping to kind of, you know, shed some light and kind of bring this into um, kind of more into just an open conversation and kind of an open dialogue is that, you know, if you have an animal that's positive, even though it's asymptomatic, it's those are the ones that you're, you know, if, if you weren't testing for an adenovirus, you would never know. So, like, we have um, one of our, you know, beautiful green tree pythons, Morpheus, who is, you know, rock solid. I mean, never missed a meal, sheds in one piece, you know, wants, has a great feeding response, has never shown a respiratory sign um, since we've had him. And he has had the highest viral load, at least initially when we were testing him. He's still positive, has never shown any signs whatsoever. And it's, those are the ones that were kind of, you know, that might just be laying under the radar that, you know, had you not test and had you not known, he would have passed the normal quarantine kind of protocols that most people have is, you know, set him in a different room or in, in a different cage and watch him for, you know, one month, three months, whatever everybody's doing. And, you know, if they're shedding, if they're eating, if they're, you know, doing everything normal and not doing any more further testing, then you would have, put them in with, you know, one of your females or, or uh, you know, added them into the group without thinking much of it. And that's kind of where, you know, the more we know, the better we can kind of manage this as an entire community and kind of as a, you know, we kind of have to work together to kind of either eradicate it, which I don't know if we can do, but at least get an idea of where it is, how prevalent it is, how many people have it, and, and kind of what we can kind of work around. So that's kind of you know, hopefully we're we're not scaring people, but we're kind of making everybody a little bit more aware of, of what's going on around um, the community. Yeah, that's sure. That's so excellent point. In, in there, addition to what there seems what, to be a lot of uh, go go ahead, Justin. Oh, I was just going to say, P and I had a, had a nice discussion uh, a few weeks back, but um, talking about you know the 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 possibility is there, there are some strains that are non-pathogenic. So you might have a high viral load, the virus might be replicating, but if it doesn't cause disease, um, that could be, you know, something that would almost be beneficial if you, in, you know, had, had an infection with that strain versus another one, because say, you know, that, that strain doesn't cause disease um, or, or is, you know, doesn't cause the severe disease, but it, it, that virus has found kind of a homeostasis where it replicates, it, it generates more progeny virus, and, and the immune system is kind of, it's escaping the immune system and hanging out in the body so you can detect it. But if there's no disease associated with that, then, you know, what's the problem? Are we, are we <laughs> maybe, maybe we want to take, you know, this is, I probably shouldn't say this, but if we took that animal and infected all the other snakes with that, that virus, Maybe everybody would be just fine, and you know everything could go on, uh, uh, you know, without any hassles or, or worries. I'm sure there's plenty of viruses that infect people that are even, you know, are unknown or nobody cares about or knows about because they don't do anything. You know, they just get in our bodies, replicate, go about their business, and, and move on to another host. Um, so very common viruses like adenovirus do that. So 
adults infected with adenovirus have no issues. Now, there are some, you know, uh, consequences when a, an infant, you know, when a pregnant mother passes uh, adenovirus on to their, their offspring, they can have, you know, some pretty severe things. But, you know, as far as the snakes go, maybe maybe there's a case for that. Or maybe we can use some of these um, weaker strains or non-pathogenic strains as, as a vaccine even. Um, that's commonly done in, in vaccinology. So the potential there. So okay. that, that that's another really interesting area of research that we could uh, look into in the future uh, as far as nidovirus goes. We're getting into gotcha. some really so, awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, buddy, I was just going to say, you know, we're, we have 30 minutes left of the live part of this program. Obviously, we can go uh, an hour over that, and, and that information can be downloaded later. But if it's okay with you, um, I, I think maybe if we discussed a little bit about the PCR testing, because I think if our sure. uh, listeners get an idea about how the PCR testing works, then maybe we can start talking about some of its strengths and weaknesses. Um, and then, you know, after we do that, then we can kind of, I'm really interested in hearing uh, Cody and Pia's experience with an animal that initially tested positive and is now testing negative, because I didn't think that was was possible or hadn't heard that. So maybe if Pia or Justin want to jump out there real quick, and everybody's heard this PCR test, what does PCR stand for, and how does it how does it detect or how does it test for the nidovirus? I'll let Justin take this one. Uh, okay. <laughs> so PCR stands for, stands for polymer, polymerase chain reaction. And so this is a, a pretty cool technology. It was developed uh, several decades ago that uh, can, can identify and detect um, the, you know, DNA or RNA of, of a virus or, you know, any, anything else. And you can get a specific, um, identification of certain things using PCR by targeting different areas of the, the genome. So in this case, they would take, um, so you, you use primers, which, it, uh, which are short segments of, of RNA, single-stranded, you know, uh, DNA, I guess, and, and they bind to the genetic information that is isolated from a sample. So, um, you know, a snake will be swabbed. Um, they'll extract the genetic information, which is RNA, and then you'll design primers to bind to that, R, uh, that, that RNA genome. And you'll actually amplify using some um, really interesting enzymes that were isolated from hot springs, you know, uh, and that can withstand really high temperatures. And so you go through these different cycles of amplification, and pretty soon you're left with um, uh, a really large amplified pool of, of your target um, uh, genetic material that, that lies between your forward and, and reverse primers. And so I, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this, but I guess you can envision like your long, a long piece of string is your genetic material and your primers are two tiny short pieces of string that bind to a certain region on that primer. And they're usually separated by a, a hundred or so uh, bases and so they amplify that region of 100 bases. So you'll, you'll wind up with a lot of pieces of, of string that, that lie between that, um, those two small pieces that bind onto the big giant piece. So you're not replicating the whole genome. You're just replicating a, a certain uh, specific site on the genome. And so that's what we've used. You know, that's what science has used in so many different applications to 
identify different things and uh, you know have a have a specific test because you're specifically binding and you have an overlapping region in your primers to bind to your to your RNA. So it has to match or it won't bind. Um, sometimes you sure. get um, uh, kind of a mismatch binding and that can give you a false positive. So if your primers um, they may not be perfect or they may not align exactly, but they still find a way to bind. Um, then they can amplify an area, but generally that's off target. And, and so, you know, if, it, if it's a false positive or if it's binding to a section of, of genetic material that's not your, your area of interest, you'll wind up with a product that's a different length. And so you can have, um, you know, just your normal PCRs. In early days, they would do the P uh, PCR reaction and then they would load it onto a gel. And just depending on how far it moved in the gel, they could, you know, they'd use a ladder of, of known sizes to kind of compare what size they were amplifying. So, say if your amplification product was 200 base pairs, but you you got a, a piece that was 300 or 400, you know, okay, that was an off-target amplification. Um, they've developed more um, sophisticated ways to uh, specifically identify. Uh, and, and they add in a third element called a probe, which binds in between the area where the primers bind. And so a probe is specific for that sequence, and it binds to the amplified section of your sequence and uh, lights up with a fluorescent uh, uh, dye that's attached to the end of the probe and will light up when it binds to the amplified region of your PCR product. And so that's called real-time PCR. And so you actually get a signal when you have an amplification event happen, you know, that's on target. And so if you don't have that, then that kind of eliminates some of those false positives. And so um, there's other mechanisms like uh, um, a, a green uh, dye that intercalates into the, into the amplified region and kind of like, you know, gets uh, more signal as, as you get more amplified products. But uh, mainly people, you know, either use the real-time PCR or run it on a gel, I think, for the, or, or just use the, the simple dye um, method. Are those uh, Justin? I, are those primers? Are those primers in those probes for nidovirus? Are they specific for ball python nidovirus? Are they specific I, for the nido and Morelia uh, cross? In other words, with the uh, ball python nidovirus PCR test positive for Morelia and vice versa. Yeah, I think the quick answer is yes. Um, the the viruses for or for Morelia viridis uh, nido and the ball python nido are about 87% identical. Um, so there's a lot of mismatches throughout the genome. I mean, that's a pretty big difference, 13%. But um, there's there's enough overlap with the PCR to to uh, um, to amplify both the the ball python and the Morelia viridis. So I, I imagine that you could potentially make primers that would be specific for either or, but I think the currently designed primers are, are uh, detect both uh, types of nidovirus. Pia can correct me if I'm wrong there. Yeah, I was say, and that's, as far as I know, and I, I'm no expert on virology, so I, that's why I kind of put, put it onto Justin because he's better at this than I am. But it, the way that I've kind of explained it is it's, it's basically a big net for NIDO, but you can basically kind of, because the the PCR will pick up both ball python and um, green tree python um, 
it should be able to pick. But the problem is, is if there's anything that's a little bit off, um, you know, usually you'll know yes or no, you know, positive or negative if you have nidovirus, but you may not know what type of nidovirus it is unless you do sequencing. So, um, so I mean, you, may, you might have, you know, some sort of new strain of, you know, nidovirus that has not been described before, um, but it'll still pick up as nidovirus because it's similar enough with all the rest of the genome that it will pick it up, but it may not be something that has been, you know, quote-unquote described before. So does that make sense? It does. Uh, yes, and yes, Justin, does. you did a great job. You, you, Justin did a great job explaining uh, the PCR test. It, obviously, it's very scientific. It's very complicated. It's uh, oftentimes not easy to put into um, uh, non-scientific terms, terms, but I think you did a yeah. Yeah, late, late terms. I think you did a very, very good job ex explaining how the test runs. Then now, probably the bigger question for the listeners: What are the limitations to the test? And I know Pia has mentioned um, false positives, false negatives. You know, maybe if you guys could just kind of go through, you know, what does a positive NIDO test mean? What does a negative NIDO test mean? Um, so. I think I'll add too to the to the amplification. You know, once you have your positive PCR, like PS said, you can sequence, and and so if you sequence that sec segment that was amplified, you can line it up with the known um, sequences of of the different nidoviruses, and you can see which one it aligns with more, and you know maybe you can uh, identify a new virus that way as well. Um, but so that's that's kind of. Uh, one way you can verify your your amplification and, and maybe uh, get the species or, or specific type or strain of, of your nidovirus. Um, I, I guess one thing that I'd, I'd like to add to the discussion on false positives and negatives is um, the virus is is likely replicating down in the epithelia of the lung. It could be you know maybe in the trachea as well, um, but it, it almost has to be um, pushed up to the surface. But it sounds like. Uh, um, it can be detected in asymptomatic animals as well. So maybe it's in the in the um, respiratory tract, the upper respiratory tract, including the yeah. oral epithelia and then the nasal epithelia. And so, um, you know, that's that's one thing. But I, I would I would suggest that it's possible that you could have a, a negative test, a negative PCR after a swab, and maybe the virus is is down deep. It's not doing a lot. It's just hanging out in the lung and you might miss it through an oral or a nasal swab. So, you know, there's one way you could have a, a false negative um, because, mm. you know, a lot of the viruses we work with, they'll, they'll hide out in different areas of the body, and you really can't detect them very well, even though they're present and still causing some issues. Uh, um, so, you know, you can have like a, a subclinical hideout, you know, uh, virus that's hiding out somewhere in the, in the body, so making so it you're very more, difficult you're more to detect. But you're more likely to get an accurate positive if the animal is showing signs of respiratory infection at the time you take the swab. Is that safe to say? Well, I, would, uh, I wouldn't I would, necessarily say that. No? I would say if, if the animal is shedding the virus, then you're going to get a positive, not necessarily symptomatic or not. Um, the virus yeah. has to just be in the epithelial cells to be able to pick up. Um, so it doesn't necessarily, because we have, I mean, we have multiple animals that are asymptomatic who have been positive multiple times, and you, know, you don't necessarily, it, it just has to, the virus just has to be in, in the tissue that you're sampling. Um, and I guess I was going to touch on that, too, is, you know, not only can the animal, you know, just the virus just is not, you know, able to kind of proliferate or be able to be picked up on a swab, is 
the swab itself, like how you get the sample, and that's kind of where my kind of technical experience is a little bit more kind of useful is is getting the sample and how you process the sample because you know even though you might be able to get an amazing swab, you have you know you have virus on there. Just the you know we know that nidovirus is a very you know unstable, weak kind of virus out in the environment. Is you know just because you you know you have a positive animal and you have a positive swab from the swab leaving the, the snake and going to the lab, you might have that you know that that virus um, degrade and and kind of basically become non-useful when, when they're trying to test. So that's another big thing that I kind of feel like is an important thing is, is you know, sample collection and sample processing is probably just as big as, you know, the animal being positive or negative. I don't know if that kind of makes sense. I, I would echo that as well. I mean, we are covered in enzymes that are, that are there to destroy RNA. Our body does not want exogenous RNA hanging out because that's kind of the the way our body makes new things, and so we can respond to things with our DNA. Uh, different areas will be transcribed into RNA that will be translated into proteins, but you don't want a lot of those just to be hanging around making proteins all the time, and so your body has a lot of ways to destroy that RNA. And so, um, you know, I mean, we, we take very good care in the lab of not exposing any samples that we're trying to isolate RNA from to these enzymes called RNases. So they're enzymes that degrade RNA. And so what P is saying is very important with uh, nidovirus testing. Um, if you're, if you're going to, you know, if you're looking for an RNA genome, you need to be very careful with the sample so you're not exposing it. And I think a lot of tests um, are using a stabilizing agent, or the, at least maybe they should, or, or freezing the sample. That will you know, slow down degradation and stop degradation for the time being. But uh, those RNases are everywhere, and they're very difficult to get rid of. So we probably need to you know, consider protecting the samples um, during shipment and having that in mind. So when you're collecting them, when you're shipping them, um, that needs to be protected. Very good, very good info. Um, Pia, why don't you uh, explain to us the uh, incidents or incidences you've had of an animal that initially tested positive and then I think you said uh, is now tested negative? Yeah, um, so I guess I've kind of alluded to it before, but so we have um, so we have a NIDO shed or a NIDO building. We have a completely separate building from our house that we keep all of our um, any animal that has ever been NIDO positive has um, been in that building um, and has never come out. So that's kind of our policy is that um, you know we initially once we've test once we tested our collection um, anybody who was positive or had possibly been kind of in contact with positive animals were all basically put out into a separate building. Um, so we're we're currently at um, I'm going to try. I think we have 22 animals in there now. But of the ones, um, so we basically because we have a very unique kind of situation with how we kind of got nidovirus and how we've been dealing with things is we're not necessarily. Um, you know, we're kind of doing more of the research aspect versus kind of the clinical, what people might be doing in their own, in their own home or their own collection. Um, so we initially treated uh, the majority of the animals when they first were um, positive for NIDO, and we kind of had our first kind of outbreak, and um, all the animals were, were dying and that sort of thing. But now, since that has passed, um, 
we have not been treating any of the animals with any antibiotics because we want to see how this virus is um, kind of working through the system, how the animals are um, kind of taking care of it with their own body and things like that. Um, but we've had uh, six animals that have had two previous positive PCRs have now had two negative PCRs. So these are ones that were either showing um, very mild clinical signs or no clinical signs whatsoever. So basically their own body has, you know, and, and that being said, it's, we're assuming that it's their body's clearing the virus, but, um, you know, the option is, too, that it might just be that the sample that we took did not, you know, have enough virus on it, the viral load was too low, or, you know, there was some sort of uh, de 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 um, I can't say the word, but, like, Degradation. the sample basically... <laughs> Degradation. There you go. Um, but yeah, so the sample might have, um, you know, not been able to, to be processed um, accurately. But anyway, so we've had six animals that have been positive twice that are now negative. Um, that being said, we also have our uh, neonates that have were um, hatched from two positive adults. Um, that the eggs were positive, but the hatchlings have been negative twice. Uh, none of them have shown any clinical signs. Um, and then we also have. Uh, three animals that have never been positive at all. So so that's kind of what we have right now going on. Wow, that's uh that's very, very encouraging the fact that uh an animal that's asymptomatic or subclinical, mildly symptomatic would possibly have the ability to, to clear the viruses. I mean that's that is huge news uh for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm I'm really excited. You know, my my job entails a lot of animal model development of viral disease, so I'm really even you know more excited about this uh, paper that Pia was talking about, where they've modeled the vir you know infection. They've infected experimentally infected these ball pythons, and then they hopefully followed them you know kind of over the long term to see what happens to the virus over time. And that's that's really what needs to be done to kind of answer these questions of does the immune system clear the virus can it can it be cleared or or does it just become persistent in certain tissues and kind of hang out and hide out in the body or you know do, do we does the animal eventually get rid of the virus and so that's you know that's maybe what's happening and i uh, p and i had discussed maybe looking at some of the antibody levels maybe antibodies are responsible for helping clear the virus and and you could do an antibody test to see if your snake was exposed and if it tests negative by the pcr route maybe the virus is cleared and, and we can get uh, clearance or resolution of the virus and, and complete cure of the disease. That would be the best uh, outcome that I could see. <laughs> Absolutely. Gotcha. Buddy, you had a question. Hey guys, a, you had a question. Yeah. I have a quick question about the test. Sorry, I, I dropped out, guys. I had to call back in, so I missed some of the discussion about the test. But, um, as you guys know, I came out, uh, I guess maybe a month ago and said, hey, you know, I've got this, I do have Nido in my collection. And for my collection, it's five animals that have tested positive that have been asymptomatic. Uh, four of the five have been, you know, bred by me in my collection. So they've been here for their entire lifespan. So, um, but my, my question is going to go towards, I guess, the average hobbyist. And by the average hobbyist, I, I guess the person who maybe might have maybe only two or three chondros or, or Morelia or ball pythons or whatever they might be keeping. But I have to ask, you know, the, the test, the PCR test, um, does it, is it really an appropriate test for a hobbyist in the fact that, um, you know, if you swab an animal and the animal comes back negative, uh, 
you know, the average hobbyist is going to say, well, I've done a test, I've done a single test, and the animal has come back negative. Do you think that it's the, the appropriate test for the hobbyist? Um, I know it's all we have right now to do it, but do you think that there could be something developed in the future that would, you know, give a, a better a better result for a negative. I know um, you guys have tested multiple times animals for just to verify that they're negative, uh, and we look at a positive as a positive, but we don't give a negative test result the same strength, the same weight that we do a positive test. And I'm wondering if if that somehow is going to uh, if people who don't know that or don't understand that are going to, it's going to build a false sense of security uh, around, around the PCR test. Um, I guess I can answer but, yeah. that. I think, I think you have to take some practicality into it that, you know, if you have a non-symptomatic animal, it's a young animal, has you know, not been exposed to an animal that's been positive, and that test comes back negative, I feel like you can kind of use that as a good guideline um, but that being okay. said, you know, there's so many kind of things that can produce a false positive, um, you know, even with a, a asymptomatic animal. But I think you kind of also have to look in um, that it's it's kind of all that we have right now. Um, hopefully in the future we might be able to pair a negative PCR with, um, you know, serum um, antibody titers, things like that. Um, sure. But, I mean, it's, I think it's it's hard to say, you know, this is this is the gold standard right now, but it's it's basically all we have and it's you know, it's I think it's the positive ones that we kinda have to look at more stringent than the negative ones and yeah, I think it's great, you know, if you get a negative sample, but if you have a negative sample and the animal's showing respiratory signs or, you know, has had, you know, bad sheds or it's had, you know, issues or there's there's things like that, I think you, you kinda have to take that with a grain of salt. Um, and I think, Justin, you can probably add in a little bit um, on that, too. But it's, you know, it's it's more trying to get awareness. And, um, you know, if you have a positive, then you can work with that more than the negative is more of a, you know, it's good and then maybe do a couple more. So, like, if so say you're purchasing a new snake and the, the seller has already tested it, it's tested negative, you bring it home, you know, bringing it into quarantine – I think it would be a good idea to test it again because the stress of moving, things like that, could flare up if it was a subclinical animal or if, this, you know, the sample wasn't taken correctly. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I trust the way that I take samples maybe better than I would somebody else because I, I know what I'm doing, and, you know, the same thing goes for everybody else. Everybody else thinks they have a very good, you know, protocol or a standard or things like that, and you know what you're doing. Um, so you might have a, a better result or a better kind of, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like a, a better feeling of, of the test that you've taken versus somebody else taking it and just uh, understanding that, you know, the person you're purchasing it from may have, you know, done the test, but the test might have, you know, sat on the counter for four hours or it might have sat on, like, the front porch in the middle of the Florida sun and things like that that might have, you know, you know kind of compromised the sample. Things things like that are, are things to think about. It's, you know, it's, it's more the positive that I'm, I'm kind of concerned about and the negatives it's like well you know a negative is good but it's you have to have multiple negatives and you know look in the clinical signs of the animal and, and kind of look at the whole picture versus just one negative test right yeah that's an excellent um, point and I, I 
you know, kind of we're on this topic now, and this, this is kind of a, a hotbed um, of people right now that are, you know, they're very worried about NIDO. Um, you know, uh, they're worried about purchasing any animal with NIDO. And so I, I think, I don't know if guideline is the right word, but there needs to be a little bit of common sense um, out there uh, as opposed, uh, you know, when, when buying and selling chondros today. Uh, and I'm going to throw out this scenario, and I'm throwing this out because it's recently happened to me. I'm in the process of selling a few uh, three-month-old, four-month-old baby chondros, and of course, I'm getting the question: Have you have they tested? Have you tested them all for NIDO? And my response uh, was, and, and again, this is completely open debate, but I'll tell you where my answer, and I'll tell you where I was coming from. Um, I tested both the parents for NIDO, and they were both negative. And I told the potential buyer of these babies, they're three months old, that I was not going to test the babies. I wasn't going to test the ones that I kept, and I was not going to test the ones that I sold. And I'm using this reasoning, and maybe you can tell me if this is right or, or wrong. I'd love to hear some input. And I gave the, the potential buyer the example of every baby that's born in the world, um, before it goes home, we could do a chest X-ray on that on that baby. Asymptomatic baby just born, goes home, you know, second day of birth. But we don't do a chest X-ray on a, every single baby born in the United States or, or in the world, for that example. And, and why do we not? It's it's cheap. It's easy to perform. And the reason that we don't do it is because it's very likely. It, it's likely to yield a very, very low incidence of disease in a otherwise healthy uh, baby that you don't have any um, indication that it has any respiratory disease. And in fact, that doing a chest x-ray on, on a baby could potentially do that baby harm. Uh, not only small doses of radiation, but a false positive if you, if you found a chest x-ray that was, let's say, uh, abnormal in a baby, and then you say, well, that baby has an abnormal chest x-ray, even though it's not symptomatic, we need to do a lung biopsy. And then you do the lung biopsy, and it has complications from the lung biopsy, when all along there was nothing wrong with the baby. That's the reason we don't do chest x-rays on every baby born in the world. Um, and, and again, the other reason that we don't do it is because just because one chest x-ray is inexpensive, if you did one chest x-ray on every baby in the world, and in NIDO's case, if you did that that chest x-ray three times before you release the baby, that would be very expensive. So that was my reasoning for not testing what I figured to be a low um, probability of an animal testing positive. So anyway, that's kind of I my think, vignette. I'd love to hear your guys' input, you know, into that scenario. I think you're right on the money with that. I mean, uh, one of the, one of the most, uh, the most interesting things that I gained from listening to the po your previous podcast and, and Pia, and then talking to, you know, Pia on the phone was that, you know, they had, they did that breeding of a positive known positive to known positive. They tracked the eggs. They, you know, looked at NIDO on the eggshells and then they tested the babies. And I think the most exciting thing and the most encouraging thing for, for the industry is that the babies are negative, even though the parents were positive, even though the eggshells were positive, 
um, the babies were negative. And I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly that we don't want to be wasting time and resources and energy um, testing every single baby that's produced because the likelihood is, is that they're negative. And unless there's a reason to test if they were exposed to or somebody and, – and I think that also kind of lies on the buyer – um, I again, like Pia said, you might trust your own methods, but if if you get somebody else's results, can you completely trust that? You don't know how their sample is handled. You don't know how those kind of things. So they might have a, a false negative, uh, which is posit- which was is possible as well. And so I think if the the impetus lies on the buyer to have that animal tested once it uh, comes in and you know that could open another pandora's box as well you sent me an animal that's positive for nido um you know i want to send it back to you now you know that kind of <laughs> a lot of things need yeah. to be worked out there but i but i think in in lar- you know we kind of keep this in perspective nido's been around for a long time probably you know hundreds of thousands of years maybe we we don't know for sure in the wild snakes and and i imagine that's how the animals got well it's got to be how the animals got exposed to the virus in the first place is animals coming in with nido virus that transmitted to to other captive animals um so that's that's the you know where we're at now and so i like like you said you know your your collection i, I imagine most of the collections in the united states that keep uh morelia of, of d- different species of morelia probably have nidovirus and and you know we need to be aware of that but i don't think we need to panic about it and have every animal tested just to you know for that peace of mind saying oh i know it's nido negative or whatever we we watch watch for the symptoms if you get a symptomatic animal you have it tested um but you know keep things in perspective I would say I, I agree, too, that it's um, – you basically I, – I keep bringing this back. It has to be kind of clinically important. So, and, and I kind of talk about our position. We had a huge NIDO, uh, virus break out, or NIDO virus outbreak, so we are very vigilant on testing. So I think we have a different kind of scenario than kind of your average keeper. So if anybody would purchase from us, we want to say – this is how many times this animal is tested negative. These are the protocols we've been doing. So, so a buyer would feel comfortable purchasing from us. But, I mean, if there's somebody else, I think it, it is basically on the buyer's kind of, you know, on their table on, on you know, are they going to test? And, and, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be the seller so much as I think it is the buyer. Um, and I think it, it's more um, kind of a, a quarantine protocol, in my opinion, than an actual, like, purchasing protocol, um, and especially, you know, also, you know, has, has the person you purchased it from had positive animals or not? Are, are they, you know, in separate rooms? There's, there's a lot of kind of facets that you have to think about when you're, when you're looking at it. It's not a very easy kind of black and white, like every animal mm-hmm. should be tested for NIDO. This is what we need to do. It's, it's more like look at the whole picture. Look at, you know, has, has the person had NIDO in their collection? How do they have, you know, is it just a baby? Is this a you know, an adult that's, you know, eight years old that has been in multiple collections. There's there's a lot of sure. things you have to think about, and it's not just, you know, and I agree, like, if it's a baby, and you know, it probably doesn't need to be tested, you know, 14 times before it gets, you know, to the to the new owner. It's, you know, if it goes into that collection, and I, if it was me, I would, any animal that comes into our facility, um, you know, python or non-venomous, we, we test for NIDO, and that's just kind of our policy just because of what we've seen and what we're kind of working with. But, I mean, if it's, you know, the, a person who has the first time they have a green tree python or things like that, it's, it's, it's up to them, and I think it's, 
bringing this information out to the kind of out to the community, they can make their own educated decision. And it's, it's not, mm-hmm. there shouldn't yep. be a mandate for everybody. I think you kind of have to use your own judgment and kind of look yep. at the whole picture on, on why, why you're doing the test and what is, what is the answer going to give you? You know, is it right. one animal that you like, it, if you have one animal and it's positive, is that going to make a difference? Or do you have, you know, you know, 50 green trees and you're bringing in a, a new breeding female then, and, and that might be a different story. You kind of have to kind of look at, there's multiple things you have to look at, not just, just you know, should it be tested for NIDO, if that makes sense. Oh, exactly. So so my comment is, and uh, we're actually, we'll, we'll be cutting off live here, but we're going to try to continue the discussion as long as everyone's willing to hang on a little bit later. Um, but, you know, this industry has just always been based on honesty. And if if you're buying a snake, you know, it, you know, having tested for NIDO and seeing what comes back result-wise, I mean, I, I could easily think of three very simple ways to say that I've tested an animal and not test them um, and just say, give you a test result to show you that an animal is negative. Um, anyone can do that. So it's, you know, what it comes down to is honesty. And it's always been, you know, you always have to know who you're dealing with. You have to understand that there are people out there who are always going to be, that are dishonest. And you have to try to seek out the honest people. And the honest people are the ones are going to be the ones to tell you, hey, I've got this in my collection and I have tested. I mean, you could have someone who's, you know, on the fringe of dishonesty and, you know, a test is not going to make them honest uh, just because, you know, they say they test it doesn't mean that they have. So you need to take, you know, the test and its results, it, it can play, it should play a part maybe if if it's important to you in, in purchasing an animal. But I think that it's almost now, you know, people feel like, well, uh, you need to have this NIDO test done and that uh, people need to understand that, you know, you you can falsify tests. Any anything can be falsified, unfortunately. And you really need to just believe in the person you're purchasing the animal from and, and they're being honest and they're being upfront with you and which has always been the case with with anything. Um and we I think everyone needs to take a step back and realize that, you know, as a hobby or if you're in, or even if it's in an industry for you, is that your reputation is really what people are are should be going after. They should be going after you for because of your reputation, because of the honesty, and it you know just just because someone says they test it, it it's not a you know the the NIDO test is not a test for honesty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Well, one thing I was going to say too is I I think it's more you know self-preservation if if you have a large collection or if you have a reason to test for yourself i think that's kind of more important than just believing somebody else has tested and it's negative i think you know i i can get animals from the most you know honest they've tested they've done things and it comes into our collection it could have been a non-symptomatic uh low-grade virus and then it comes into our collection and the virus kind of you know because of stress because of moving it it, that's what kind of brings it on, you know, and you kind of have to take care of yourself and do 
proper quarantine and, and you know, do the testing yourself if you if you have. So like Cody and I, we have a large collection. You know, we can't just believe in somebody just because they're a good person. We We kind of have to make sure and test and just double check, not because we don't believe the other person, not because we don't trust them. It's just there's so many variables that you, you know, can't kind of, kind of bank on that that can happen between the time they leave one person's house to the time they get to yours. Exactly. I, I exactly. would throw another wrench in, in there as well. We, uh, I was talking to my graduate student who's a uh, veterinary pathologist, and uh, he, he was telling me the difference between um, um, valid or, let's see, um, approved labs, testing labs, What's the word he used? But um, where they they have some accredited labs versus non-accredited, and 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 non-accredited labs, they're they're out there. They probably do it for a reasonable price, but they also don't use a lot of the controls, and that's how they cut down on the price of the test. And they don't, you know, send you the stabilizing agent or things like that, and so they don't have those positive and negative controls to to verify. And and he was saying there's a lot of the lot that goes into that, and I was talking to him about potentially establishing a, a NIDO test at Utah State at the veterinary diagnostics lab, and, and he was kind of telling me the process and that there could be some potential funding, you know, through the state or through through the diagnostic lab that could, could help do that. But, um, you know, there's a difference between a, a validated or an accredited and a non-accredited lab. So, you know, another piece of information uh, that you might consider when you're having your own animal tested but you know i agree fully that you know it's it's probably more on the the person who has the animal to make sure that that's not the case for their own peace of mind and for their own collection's sake and it's especially um very important with with a professional breeder like cody and pia where they they need to know that their animals are are negative or, or what they're breeding together is negative so they can be confident that what they're selling is is nido negative so they don't have something down the road that kind of ruins that form or, or has gives them issues down the road. So um, probably maybe a little less important for the hobbyists like myself, but very important for industry people. Yeah, and I was going to just piggyback on that, and that's kind of – so Susan uh, Fogelson and I, um, so she's at Fish Head Labs, we've been trying to work on a um, kind of NIDO home test for people to do at home uh, through PCR that would be for non-symptomatic animals, and we've kind of butted up against this. Not all labs are created equal, and not all sampling is created equal, and, and we're, we're making sure that, you know, and that's kind of why it's taken longer than we were expecting, is that, you know, if you're going to, I mean, if you're putting this test out there, you want it to be accurate, you want it to be reliable, you want it to be, you know, a good test that people can trust, um, and that's kind of where we're, we're at right now is we've been working with a couple of labs and, and making sure that because we have lots of positive, um, you know, known positive samples that we can send them and test what the results that they're getting and what, you know, the results that we have and kind of see what, what, what we're at. And that's kind of why it's been taking a little bit longer than we were hoping um, just because we want to make sure that, you know, what we're sending out there is a good test and it's not just, you know, the cheapest, the, you know, quickest, the, you know, easy out. It's We're trying to make sure that, you know, if we're sending something out to the community, that it's it's a reliable and accurate and trustworthy test. So that's kind of a little piggyback on why it's, you know, we're hoping it was going to, you know, be a little bit sooner, but with working with a couple of labs, it's, it's, 
a little bit harder than than um, anticipated. So, but hopefully soon we're we're still working on on getting a a test out there. So, Pia, how do you guys go about testing an animal? Can you walk us through your your test procedure? Uh, yeah. So we're uh, I mean we're fortunate we're working with a research lab with CSU. Um, so we're we're basically doing the protocol that they have um, asked of us, which is uh, we're doing uh, coinal swabs uh, that we freeze. So they are a sterile swab that we're doing the coina, putting it into a sterile tube, and then uh, we freeze it at negative 30, which is basically just regular human freezer temps. Um, we don't have a cryo freezer. If I had a Christmas list, that would be on it. But um, <laughs> but anyway, so we freeze it as soon as. I have a lot of little things on my Christmas list, but um, cryo freezer and like a yeah, big thing. a few other things. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's only a small thing, you know, I don't know, probably $30,000, $40,000 um, for a cheap one. But, <laughs> but anyway, so we freeze the sample directly um, as soon as we get it, So, um, and then we ship it out to them. So basically we have a – we basically have to coordinate with the lab on the day that we're sampling, the day that we're shipping, and everything together. So we're making sure that we're not having any lag time um, that could possibly, you know, change the values of the samples. Um, that being said, for kind of the general public, um, I know there is RAL out there who's doing the testing as well. But it's, um, you know, some of the, the techniques that they're using may not be the same that we're using, and it kind of just depends on. I guess what the recommendations are and why they use, why they're using them. Um, so what we're what we're doing with the test that Susan and I are, are working on is we're um, it's going to be basically so the the swab can be taken in the kind of upper uh, esophagus or the coena. Um, that's kind of where the most of the viral particles are being found, um, and then putting it into either an RNA stabilizer or freezing it directly. Uh, are, are the two kind of gold standard ways of testing um, and then submitting to the, to the lab as soon as possible. So, not you know, don't send it on a Friday on a holiday or, or things like that. You, you know, send it on a Monday so it gets there by Tuesday or, or things like that. And the, we're, we're testing every three months, um, and that's kind of the kind of the protocol that we're using with the researchers, and that's kind of we're, we're monitoring our collection long term to kind of see you know, how long it takes for an animal to be positive to negative, and if they're negative, are they going to stay negative? Um, knock on wood, we haven't had an animal go from positive to negative back to positive, um, but we hmm. have had animals that have stayed positive the whole time, stayed negative the whole time, and then gone from positive to negative. Okay. Hey, uh, so tell us a little you, bit about uh, the positive. Yeah. Go ahead, Justin. Oh, I just wanted to. So I've heard that term co coanal swab. Uh, is that how you say mm -hmm. it? And I was thinking, I, I thought it involved the cloaca in some way. Can you can you give that to to us uh, uh, ignorant yeah. people what what that means and how you do that? Yeah, sorry. I I sometimes use big terms and I don't necessarily think that not everybody understands. But so it's so the coena <laughs> is the the opening of the roof of the mouth. So basically, when a snake closes its mouth, its glottis, which is the um, the windpipe, will kind of push up towards that little hole, and that way they can breathe uh, with keeping their mouth closed, um, and that's kind of the area. And that's why they think 
or we found that nidovirus uh, particles are, are kind of prolific in that area is because that's where the air goes right through uh, most of the time. So kind of that upper esophagus, Coena area is the gold standard as far as I know on, on um, where we're testing and where we're getting the most samples. Um, previous to us doing this, um, it was lung washes, as far as I know, that was kind of the gold standard of that's what people were trying to do because um, there wasn't a lot of testing on live pythons previous, you know, to two years ago or so. It's, it's been a lot of necropsies that they've been finding this on. Um, and if they were finding it on live snakes, it was, you know, they were trying lung washes, they were trying oral swabs, they were trying blood, they were trying, you know, anything and everything just to try to see if they could find the virus because we weren't sure exactly where it was. Um, but thanks to a lot of this research and um, some of the papers, like uh, Rachel Marshing's paper that's out on uh, NIDO testing and live pythons, um, the coenal and the, um, you know, upper esophagus swab is, is kind of the best area to find viral particles uh, currently. I say currently because there's always new information that's coming out. So okay. that kind of gotcha. make sense? Yes, yeah, I don't know how I yeah, get so, that term. That's that's really cool. <laughs> Justin, I, I hey, listen, man. Up until a few months ago, I thought it had something to do with the anal area too. So don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> yeah, it's it's only I don't one letter in the swab in the wrong spot. Yeah, yeah, I just envisioned and, a bunch and you of modest keepers swab. swabbing the cloaca. <laughs> so, yeah, and you don't want to swab the cloaca and then swab the coena. That's a, a bad thing. A lot of times we do uh, we do um, testing in birds, and we do with uh, we do uh, the eye swab, and then we do a mouth swab, and then we do a butt swab, and we always say you've got to do it in that order: eye, mouth, butt, not butt, mouth, eye. <laughs> So. <laughs> okay. Um, so there, there is. Um, so I, I know a few people since since I've posted that you know I have NIDO. A lot of people have contacted me, and a few people have contacted me and said that uh, they've been told that all they have to do is swab the exterior nares of their snake, and that will provide them with a good uh, collection site for the NIDO virus. Um, and, you know, I, I know that you have been on the show and you had told us before how to do this. And um, But that would seem like a really easy way to, to do a collection. So you don't think that would be the way to go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you um, wanted to get a negative. I mean, I mean, you could just wave it around in the air if you wanted to get a negative. But, or, or, yeah, or but you get <laughs> no, um, so I guess the the thing you have to think about is when you're taking these tests, you have to kind of understand what like what you're looking for. So if you have a snake, so I'm I'm sure you could get a you know a good swab from a nares that has gunk, just whole bunch of you know snot coming out of it. It would maybe be a good sample, but just doing it on the outside of the scales, on the otherwise you know non-respiratory, non-symptomatic you know, symptomatic animal, I don't necessarily think that that would be a good sample. Um, that being said, because we know where we're finding the virus on necropsy and on, um, on these tests, it's, you know, you're basically, okay. it's, 
it's you're trying to find you're trying to test where the virus is. So depending on the test you're looking or what test you're testing for and what virus you're testing for is where you're going to look for it. So I mean, if I'm looking for a crypto uh, PCR, I'm not going to swab the eyeball. I'm going to swab either do you know a gastric lavage or a cloacal lavage because I know it's going to be in the GI tract. So if we're looking for ninovirus, then yeah, we're going to look in the respiratory tract. And yes, the nares might be. Um, there might be some virus there, but you're not going to find it as well as if you're going to do the, the you know, upper esophagus or the coena. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Okay. Um, trying to catch up here on the outline. I know one of the things like uh, Justin kind of Justin had kind of hit on earlier is, um, you know, this virus. It's obviously uh, found in the wild, do we think all of these animals, um, you know, was it the initial founding captive bred or, or wild caught animals that came in? I mean, is, is Nido been in our collections, you know, for that long, or is it something that mutated from the ball python Nido virus that now it's, you know, able to infect uh, the Morelia here? How, how do you guys think that that, that happened? Well, I, I I would definitely say that this is not the same virus as the ball python nidovirus, and I would be very surprised if this was a you know a strain that originated from the ball python nidovirus. I, I imagine it came in on a on a wild caught snake, and uh, you know this Morelia viridis nido uh, nidovirus is uh, specific and different from the other, and it's been probably evolutionarily. Um, separated for probably hundreds of thousands of years, um, where, gotcha. where they're you know 13% different in their genome. That's a that's a pretty big uh, difference. And so yeah. I, I you know I I've heard some comments out there. Well, this is just the same thing that we've seen for years and years. Well, it, it's probably a similar disease, and it's probably very very closely related to the ball python nidovirus, but um, definitely a different thing, and and not uh, not the same thing that's been going around. I don't think you could. I, I would I would be well. One of the cool things about this group of viruses is they are they are notorious for only infecting one species, and so mm. um, you might have spillover like with SARS. You know, SARS was not a human virus. It it spilled over into humans and had really drastic effects when it infected a human. But um, the humans don't really replicate it and spread it very efficiently further. Like I was saying, you can just isolate somebody. They might be infectious for a few days, but uh, you know, as long as they're not coming in close contact with people, they're not going to spread the virus any further um, once they're symptomatic and, and you can kind of isolate them. Um, I, I imagine, you know, it's maybe the same thing here where we have a specific um, virus that infects ball pythons, ball python nidovirus, and it came in with wild ball pythons, it might mm -hmm. spread further, but probably not. And if it did spread further, it would probably be a very limited infection, um, potentially with, with no disease at all in, in other species. But it does have gotcha. some effect on, on ball pythons. 
just based on, you know, kind of this group of viruses and what it does. And they've, they found these uh, related viruses in, in all sorts of different species. The, the top, you know, the longest virus, uh, RNA virus before that was found in a whale, which I thought was kind of weird. How do you get wow. viral dissemination in a whale? But um, it, it had a, a whale nidovirus um, or, or, you know, related virus, coronavirus, I believe it was. But um, so, you know, with with that in mind, I think it's probably specific. And the ball python nidovirus came in with ball pythons. The you know the Morelia viridis uh, nidovirus probably came in with green tree pythons, um, and you know maybe can spread to closely related species. But uh, I, I think personally, that's what I would believe is is the case. Okay, Justin, I've got a, a personal question uh, for the panel here, and I don't like to use the show as a personal platform. But I do have uh, a quarantine room where I've had animals, Morelia, that have tested positive for NIDO. In that room, I also have – it's the same room I use to quarantine my ball pythons. So I have ball pythons up there that have been quarantined in that area for a year. None of them have ever shown any signs or symptoms. Is it safe to take them out of that area? That that were positive in the past, or that are are positive, uh, the, the, the or, or they just went through the been, facility. The ball pythons yeah. are up there with the with the Morelia. Um, the you know the Morelia some of the Morelia have tested positive. Some of the Morelia have tested positive for Nido. The ball pythons never have. I'm afraid to move them out of that room, though. Yeah, I mean, into I my, guess into my regular right. collection, you know, into my normal collection. Yeah a personal preference but I, I i i guess you know based on what what uh, i was saying earlier i would imagine you'd probably be safe especially if you're not seeing any uh, disease signs and and you yeah. kept an eye on them but you know if for your own uh, your own uh peace of mind you might have them tested before you move them out yeah i, yeah, I, I actually would... have spot uh, go ahead go ahead uh, pia oh no i was gonna say i'm like the thing is, is you don't know until you test. So, you know, as, and it's the same thing with, you know, if you do a knee, or if you don't do a necropsy and an animal dies, you can just be like, oh, I think it died from, you know, this or that. Without, without doing the testing, it's all theory. And I think if, if you're concerned, then you should test. And if you, if you test and they're negative, then you know. And if you test and they're positive, then you know. It's, you know, it's, you kind of have to, if, you, if you're concerned and you want to know, you should test. You shouldn't just yeah. assume or just throw it all, you know, caution to the wind kind of, you know, yeah. it's, and I would say, you know, it's, it's likely that you have, you know, if, if it's the Morelia um, viridis nidovirus with those, you still might have the ball python nidovirus as well. It's, you just have to test for it or you may not. Okay. So it, it, you, you just don't know. Um, and I, I mean, it's kind of the the nature of the beast is you can either turn your head and just you know hope, hope for the, for the best, best or <laughs> right or or you can test and know and even if you test you still might not know that's you know right. that's the kind of unfortunate thing that Cody and I have done a lot of times is you know we test for things and we find weird random things you don't know and you know what does it mean or you know you may not find anything and it's you know it's you kind of have to take each case by case and, you know, work with what you have. And if you're concerned, then test. And if you, you know, if you feel like they're doing great and you want to use your collection as a closed collection and, you know, 
test animals that are coming out or just, you know, things like that. And you kind of have to use your own personal judgment. But and I, okay. it always worries me when somebody's like, well, I, they're all good. They haven't shown any signs. And then you put them in, and all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of dead snakes, and then you're like, well, I should have done something. But sure. I'm, only, I'm only talking from personal experience, and, you know, it's, it's to each his own. Understood, so understood. We, well, thank, thank you for the input. We, we, you guys kind of touched yeah. on this a little bit earlier, but uh, who, who do you guys feel should be responsible for the testing, the seller or the purchaser? I, I mean, I personally think it's the purchaser has to, they have to be comfortable with who they're buying, where they're buying it from, and what they're doing with it. Um, I think you kind of have to take your own accountability, and instead of just pointing the finger like, oh, you know, they tested, it was negative, so I should be fine, I think that's kind of a, you know, not necessarily the right way to think of it. Okay. I'd agree. So, uh, responsibility on both, 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 uh, both sides, yeah. essentially, is what you're saying. Okay. All right. Yeah, I mean, um, what, what do you guys think should be done with asymptomatic animals or subclinical animals? That are positive. Yes. Um, I personally uh, would isolate them in a different area of the house, different building, if you can, um, and just work them as a different collection. Um, until they're, you know, I, and I don't even know, like, you know, so say all of our animals become negative at some point in time, I don't know if I would still feel comfortable moving them back into the house. I think I would keep, you know, any animal that's been positive, I I would personally keep in a positive separate area. Um, and that's, that's just kind of how, at least for now, how we're going to be doing things. But Okay. All right. Yeah. It certainly sounds sounds reasonable. What else you got, my friend? Okay. What else? All right. What else on, on, we're, on we're, the list? Let's let's roll on for a couple of things. Let's try to debunk some myths that's going around going around on uh, social media about nidovirus. Bill, you want to do the first do question? Okay. Okay. Um, so the large scale, this is one that um, actually a, a friend of mine uh, kind of put out there on social media that I wasn't uh, super happy about. But this theory that big breeders have known about NIDO for many years and they've kept it a secret. <laughs> That's a good one. If if they knew about it, they could have got a publication out of it, right? <laughs> I mean, there was probably, I think there was a sense or an indication that there was some kind of infectious agent that was going around collections that was causing disease, and we didn't really know what it was, and maybe we just thought it was a bacterial infection we treated or a more aggressive bacterial infection. Um, and, you know, so it, it, it's, like I said, it's probably been around for, for decades. Uh, I'm sure it's been around for decades in, in some instances, but um, you know whether or not we've we've uh, identified it. So the fact that they've uh, discovered this virus or characterized this virus doesn't make it a new virus. It just makes our knowledge of the virus new. And so it's probably been going around for for years and years, and we just didn't have a name for it or know what kind of agent caused it. But now we have that information. And so I, you know it's kind of funny how um, everybody's panicking. And, you know I think we shouldn't 
we should keep it in that perspective of it's been around for a long time and now we have new information and this is very helpful. We can try to take steps to, you know, decrease the spread or to eventually eradicate it if possible. And I think that's always a good thing. You know, the more information you have, the better off you are. So instead of panicking and, you know, I, I think this could be really, really bad for, you know, sales of, of carpet pythons and green tree pythons, but I don't think it should be. I think we just need to kind of take it with a grain of salt, get the available information and make the best, uh, you know, moves possible to, to, you know, try to prevent the spread further or try to, you know, eventually eliminate the virus. But, but to do it in a, um, a responsible and informed manner, um, you know, I don't think we should stop buying, you know, green tree pythons and carpet pythons altogether. And I, and I don't even think necessarily that buying an animal with nidovirus is going to be, you know, a horrible thing in the end if, if you can properly manage it or, you know, keep it isolated or whatever, especially if it's a very uh, valuable or important animal. But, you know, we just need to kind of keep things in perspective. That's an excellent uh, response to that. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, I would I would agree too. Like I don't I don't think we need to have like a mass like everybody closes their collection and we just don't do you know it's a mass freeze. We just I think we just have to take the information that we have now, which is new information, and kind of make educated and informed decisions going forward. Um, you know I I don't I know having a positive animal is not you know a death sentence or you know a scarlet letter. You 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 know we've kind of seen that everybody kind of has or not everybody, but I mean, the majority yeah, of people who have had large collections are most likely definitely. having positive animals. Um, yep. And I mean, and even, even in the Rachel Marshing paper, it's, you know, 30% of the pythons that they tested were positive for NIDO. So, I mean, if you just use that as a guideline, 30% of the snakes that are in collections are positive and you kind of see where, where we're at. But I mean, wow. at the same time, do, you know, I don't think we should willy-nilly just be sending snakes all over the place and not necessarily have a, you know, a good sense of, you know, is the animal positive or negative? Has they had any, you know, have they had any respiratory signs? You know, a lot of people have tortoises that are um, mycoplasma positive that, you know, or herpes positive that they can, they can, you know, maintain herds of positive animals without it being, you know, detrimental to the animal's health or to, you know, breeding projects or things like that. I think you just kind of have to, you know, work with what you have and the information you have and make, you know, educated and informed decisions. Gotcha. Hey, Pia, can you give Excellent. us a quick rundown of the known python species that NIDA virus has been detected in? Um, yeah, so I can first start with our collection. Um, so we have uh, our green tree pythons have been um, nidopositive, uh, our jungle carpets, uh, inland carpets, diamond pythons, rough scale pythons. Um, those ones have been positive for nido in our collection. Um, we have okay. sabu pythons that are negative, uh, black-headed pythons that are negative, olive pythons that are negative, um, and not in our collection, but we've tested emerald boas that have been negative. Uh, we've also tested multiple uh, venomous species that have been negative as well. Um, we've tested our black mambas, Jameson's mambas, Usambar vipers, uh, Sri Lankan palm pit vipers, speckled forest pit vipers, puff adders, coral cobras. Um, and then of other animals that I, or other species I know that have been positive, um, there's been... Um, 
uh, Woma pythons that have been positive, uh, reticulated pythons that have been positive, blood pythons that have been positive, um, I think children's pythons and spotted pythons as far as I know. So, I mean, the thing hmm. I want to say is, um, and we kind of were going to touch on this before, was so far there are three what we call published nidoviruses, which is the ball python nidovirus, the Morelia virus um, nidovirus, and the Indian python. I think I said Indian rock before. But um, those are the three, I believe, that are actually published. And then um, the amazing uh, Dr. Jim Wellahand, who will find viruses in anything, has, um, I think he's characterized two more carpet python nidoviruses and a blood python nidovirus. So that's where I was saying is sequencing out. Um, sequencing out will probably tell you more information um, that, you know, this this is, the thing is now we have the test, so we're able to look for it. And so I think it's it's not that this, you know, one ball python nidovirus has mutated and taken over the world. It's, you know, we have found nidovirus and ball pythons, and Justin was kind of talking about this before, is now we're able to characterize ball, uh, nidovirus in green tree python, uh, in green tree pythons, in carpet pythons, and things like that. And I think some of the closer, um, you know, closer kind of genetically animals will ha can have maybe a, a similar um, nidovirus, and that's kind of our hope because um, we're going to be working on a research project with um, CSU in for the next couple of years, hopefully, on seeing, you know, what different species is nidovirus found and things like that. And since we've had so many snakes in our collection that have tested positive, I can't tell you whether they're all the green tree python nidovirus or if this is a, you know, there's a rough scale python nidovirus and if there's a, you know, diamond python, you know, nidovirus or, or what. And hopefully we'll have that information in the future. But what we can say is nidovirus is fairly broad-ranging in different species, now we're just able to test for it. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not just a ball python. It's not just a, you know, green tree python. It's, you know, if you're seeing respiratory signs in, you know, any python or boa species, I think it would be worth testing. But at the same time, knowing where you're testing is going to also give you more information. So, you know, there are not all labs are created equal, and not all labs will be able to pick up every different, um, you know, sequence of nidovirus. You kind of have to know what what you're looking at. Okay. Or who you're yeah, there was, with, there, I guess you should say. There was also a, a recent publication um, back in 2016 that looked that, that identified a um, nidovirus infection in shingleback lizards and shingleback skinks yeah. in Australia. And this was in the wild. They were seeing kind of die-offs from upper respiratory tract infections, and they identified a nidovirus from those lizards. And so, you know, there's probably a lot of different nidoviruses hi hiding out there. You know, who knows down the road if we're going to see uh, different nidoviruses in different species or, or closely re related species groups. Okay. Good information. So uh, a, a question about being species-specific for nidovirus. Uh, any speculation as to why some animals uh, it's, it, it's pathogenic and other animals it isn't? Do you think that uh, the species-specific uh, virus may, may not be pathogenic and then uh, an introduction of a, a closely related uh, nidovirus species from a, a similar species 
uh, is more pathogenic, so the immune system doesn't recognize or it creates a stronger immune response. Uh, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think everything that we could say about that is speculative up to now, but I think we do have the tools that we can look at that and see, you know, maybe, um, and, and I, I just applaud uh, PN and Cody for the work they've been doing with their collection and the transparency that they've had with that to, to help us better understand these things. I think, you know, where they said they have related species that, that have nidovirus infections, that would be a great place to start to look at those sequence different differences between the different positive animals to see if it's all the same thing and it's just kind of circulating among uh, closely related species or if they have, you know, different uh, nidoviruses like PETA alluded to, you know, maybe there's a rough scale python nidovirus. But, um, you know, that's that's a hard question to answer. And, and I think, um, you know, like is the case for SARS where uh, it's, you know, SARS isn't a human host, but when it leaks into the humans, it can be very a, a dramatic infection and, and, you know, heavy disease, um, heavy mortality, things like that. Um, you know, there is a potential for, you know, that, that, that to happen, um, that, you know, infection of a, of a closer, closely related species could, could result in more severe disease. Um, but up to now, we, we don't have an answer for that, but, the, but it is a, a potential. It is a, a possibility. Okay. All right. So I think we've kind of answered some of the other uh, myths, but we'll, we'll touch on them real, we'll, very quickly. Um, so my collection has been closed for X number of years, so my collection cannot have nidovirus. Unless it's been closed for 100,000 years and they never got any uh, wild-caught animals, then maybe maybe not. <laughs> it can be there. Well, well, yeah, and I'll, I'll add to that, too, uh, as far as the clothes collection goes. I mean, if, if people have been to a reptile show, gone over to their friend's house that has reptiles, um, you know, so on and so forth. So, so how closed is a, is a lot of people's um, collections really? I mean, all of us as reptile keepers, I think, have broad-ranging interests. And I think it's pretty hard to keep a clothes collection because we've, we've talked about it for years, and I don't think – that's ever going to happen because my interest changes by the week and there's a new species or something that, that, uh, you know, that I'd like to bring in and stuff. And there's, you know, like, like you guys were talking about earlier, some of these viruses that, that may be present that, uh, you know, we don't know anything about, you could do your quarantine and everything and you could do all of your different testing and you might bring something brand new and, and have no, no idea. It might be a totally unrelated species to what you're keeping and, and, and everything like that. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I feel like, um, you know, I mean, I guess there is such thing as a closed collection, but, uh, I, I feel like it's, it's probably not, not so much as far as, uh, you know, j the, most of the reptile keepers that are out there, they're, you know, you see something that you want, you got to bring it in. So that, that goes back to your quarantine practices and knowing what, what, you know, being educated and knowing what the known uh, ailments are for that species and, and be proactive about it, you know, so. I think Pia probably so, said it, said it best. You know, she, she said that if, if you have a sizable collection of animals, whether it's ball pythons or Morelia species, 
you you have Nido in your collection until proven otherwise. I mean, it's I think it's that great. And so many people have come out, um, you know, that I think that 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 is that you know kind of where you have to you have to be right now, or at least that's where I am right now with Nido virus. Yeah, and I would you know, know and I, somebody I, that says they're completely Nido free that hasn't had any testing done. If they, yeah, I'd be a little wary of that if you're getting an animal from that collection. Yeah. Right. I think also, you know, the, the, a lot of people because of social media and everything now know that this is, is out there. Um, you know, everybody who's been keeping chondros for however long, we've everybody's been under the impression that um, they just die for no reason. I mean, have you guys heard of that? Chondros just dropped dead just out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Also, yep. Yeah. G- genetics. Genetics. Oh, man. You know, watch out for those blue line animals. They just, you know, they die. Um, for no for no reason, uh, you know I get my seasonal RIs and uh, I only get RIs when when breeding and you know I'm a you know a, I'm a, I become a veterinarian when that happens and I've got my bottle of Batril on hand and yeah no I've only had RIs and, and that's that's it but um, I think that both the the buyer and the seller you know they they whoever if they are aware because a lot of people are now um, you know it, it falls back on them. And, and um, it has to be discussed openly, and only only you, as the keeper, really know if you're if you're being honest, because it's pretty easy to tell somebody what they want to hear. Um, yeah. You know, so that 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 also yeah, as the seller, it's very oh yeah no, my collection's been awesome, no problems. I've I've had a close collection for the last 15 years, haven't brought anything else in, no problems. Um, so that's where being educated on the um, the uh, buyer's end uh, really comes in is, is asking as many questions to the seller as possible because if you know the right questions to ask, it's pretty. I think it would be pretty easy to, to catch them off guard. If, if they can't answer your questions to your satisfaction, I think you should take your business elsewhere. Gotcha. Agreed. So, yeah, agreed. so Let's continue on. So my collection is geographically isolated, as in maybe I am in uh, Puerto Rico or a small island off the northwest side of the United States. So my collection can't have NIDO virus. I would just say that NIDO virus has been found in Australia, Europe, and the U.S. So if the animal has been in any of those areas, then it's most likely can okay. be affected with Let's go. Perfect answer. Let's and go again, to the next one. If, well, if it's wild caught. I mean, they're Australian animals. It's exposed naturally. Right. I did see the comment that uh, somebody posted from Australia. Well, glad we, we haven't run into that virus here yet. Did, did you happen to see that? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I also like yeah, it. They're like, well, yeah. we just have sunshine virus. And I'm like, well, that, that's probably worse. <laughs> well, but, you know, we, we, uh, no. we have a friend, uh, we have a couple veterinarian friends that, that are in Australia. And, and one of them is uh, uh, Joshua Linnaeus. I'm hoping I'm not butchering that last name. Um, but we were um, at a, a vet conference not, not too long ago uh, in Texas. Um, and, uh, we were we were chatting with him and asking if um, 
Yeah, no. Have, have you seen Nido? Have you seen Nido virus in in any of the python species? And he said, Oh yeah, it's a, you know it's one of the most commonly seen, or one of the most common things that 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 he sees. Um, and he's seen it. Um, I think he said in Antaresia, um, you know, so your children's pythons, spotted pythons, and uh, pygmy pythons, all that stuff. Um, and Aspidites, which are the Wilmas and the blackheads. Um, and the, and the Morelia species as well. So um, they haven't seen it in any, he hasn't seen it in any of the venomous species, um, but it, it seems to be something that they see on a, on a regular basis. So, yeah. All right. Great information. So, so I've never had a sick animal or observed any signs in, or symptoms in my collection, so I cannot have nidovirus. Oh, that's a lie. I, I would just say, I feel like there's there's this some there's this clout that everybody wants to have these perfect, healthy animals that have never had any kind of illness or disease or you know injury or anything. We're like, oh, they're you know perfect health, never had an RI, never had a mite, never had a never had a never had a. And I feel like we are working with live animals. And, I mean, just like people, they get colds, they get flus, they get viruses, they get sick, they get bacteria. Like, these are live animals. Like, there is no shame in having an animal that is, you know, sick or injured or, or anything. It's, you know, like, this happens. Like, you should be open and honest and take care of the animal, take care of the, you know, condition, whatever is going on. I think it's – if you have said there's, you've never had an RI and you've never had anything either – you haven't been keeping animals long enough or you're oblivious to animals or you're not honest. I think those are kind of your three options. But that's spot just my on. first opinion. I think yep, there's, definitely a stigma, there's definitely a stigma among herpetoculturalists to say, you know, yeah, that, that's the case, that everything's fine here. You know, buy with confidence and don't, don't worry about, you know, that. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of, and, and if somebody comes out and says, oh, I have nidovirus, then people avoid them, you know, or, or people, you know, may, may think, oh, I don't want to buy anything from them. They have no nidovirus. But I think they're kind of backwards in that thinking because the people who are identifying, you know, those infected animals, um, you know, they have, they have that knowledge and they can, they can prevent uh, sending something to you that um, is, is infected and, you know, or, or at least doesn't have a, a background of nidovirus. And I, I, you know, that stigma needs to go away. I think that's been, that's, been all too common among breeders for for a long time and nobody wants to talk about it but as soon as you kind of open up and say oh i had an animal that was sick and you know this is what happened then all of a sudden they feel more comfortable about opening up oh i had something like that too or i had an animal drop dead the other day i have no clue what happened you know but as long as they have that information from you they'll they'll be willing to share it but if if you don't bring it up first they're definitely not going to bring it up first you know it's kind of like that um that topic that's just uh, not discussed in, in herpeticulture, and I think that really needs to change. We need to be more open and honest and uh, transparent with with our animals because, like they said, you know, we're going to have infections, we're going to have sickness, we're working with live animals, we're going to have things that, that die or, or things that come in that are new, and we need to work together to help, um, you know, manage that and, and, and work with it rather than try to hide it and and work around it. Well, yeah, I, I agree 100%, and uh, I just want to add to that, Justin, um, you know, because, of course, that, stig that, that stigma and everything has been around for a long time, um, probably since people started keeping reptiles and 
learning that these animals are living organisms that can get viruses and problems. <laughs> the second somebody says, I've, you know, I've got a virus, usually it's not that person. It comes from somebody else that heard it from somebody, oh, you know, this person's got a virus. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't even, don't shake their hand. Don't even get anywhere near them. They've got a virus. And then people won't do business with them. They think they're not a good keeper. They think that they don't have good um, husbandry practices, so on and so forth. I think so on top of say being transparent and saying, Hey, I'm dealing with an issue. Um, I have this virus, you know, whether it's NIDA or something else, you really need to be, um, uh, on top of your management practices and, and make that person, um, understand what you're doing. Kind of like what we're doing here is we have NIDA virus. Um, we, we handle, we manage the situation accordingly. We, we separated animals into a different building. We have tested everything in our collection, non-venomous wise, uh, which is just Python. So every Python's got tested and, so, so we knew that, know the status of our whole collection. So if, when we're offering animals that are for sale, we've tested them for nidovirus multiple times, and they've tested negative for nidovirus. Not, not, not that they are, um, you know, because as, as we talked about, there can be false negatives. But after two, three, four, five negative tests, when will you say, okay, that's enough? You know, are we just going to stop buying pythons? Altogether, are we going to just get out of herpetoculture? Because you know, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So we have to figure out how to manage it, and and tell the people what we're doing. So they, you as the buyer, if you feel comfortable with what the person is telling you, then you can move forward with it. I, and I know I would rather buy something from somebody who was upfront and honest and said, "Hey, I, I had this issue." This is how I've handled it. These, you know, I've, I've tested, you know, for this, and the animal that I'm sending you is negative. You could also test it, and then have something already prearranged, like, hey, if you get this animal and you know you test it in your three to six month quarantine or whatever you have, and it comes back negative, then you could have a management plan for that too, and kind of go from there. But then on the recipient's end if they haven't tested their own collection and they don't have a full understanding of what may actually be going through, you could send them a negative animal, just like you said, but you were open and honest about your viral outbreak, then that snake you sent them gets the virus, but it could have been from something they had in their collection and, uh, and I gave it to that animal. So, you know, that also has to be discussed on their quarantine side and everything. So, um, you know, I mean, we could, we could go for another three hours talking about that. <laughs> yeah. I think that initial, that initial post on the, you know, kind of that blew up this, this idea of nidovirus kind of blaming different people in the industry for spreading known out. Well, it wasn't known at the time and you can't, so there was no way to track it. You know, there's no way to, that it came in and they had it tested and then they found out that their negative animals got nidovirus from this positive animal. So that, I think that's really irresponsible. We can't be pointing fingers. That doesn't do any good. The only thing we can do is move forward and, and manage what, with what we know with, with the information we have. Absolutely. And I think, exactly. you know, going back, going back to what we were talking about earlier, can this be, eradicated from collections. I don't think it's going to be. It, I think it's here to stay because there's so many pythons worldwide in captivity. 
and a lot of people that are keeping and breeding these things, they might not be listening to Green Tree Python Keeper Radio or Morelia Python Radio. They they may you know be the old schoolers that you know they don't have a Facebook, they don't they don't they don't subscribe to that kind of thing. So um, you know it may be out there. So the people that are educated about it, uh, it's up to your own due diligence to be proactive about it and. Um, you know, if you're not going to test every animal in your collection, well, at least it, it test the animals that are going to be going out for sale. Uh, if you have animals that are uh, symptomatic, uh, you test those animals. If they're positive, move them, move them into an area that is designated for them. Uh, just very, you could you can make it basic. If you're just doing something, it's better than nothing. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree, Cody. I don't think we're going to eradicate it. It's just, uh, you know, the the nature of the hobby. Um, you know, we still bring a fair amount of wild-caught chondros into the U.S., and people are still always, you know, unfortunately, they they want to buy the cheapest animal they can. And so, um, you know, if, God, if you God, want to make I, sure you're getting do the, I, do, do, the quality animal. Do I know all do I know all about that? <laughs> you know, it's like you've got <laughs> right. you've got you've got quality and you've got a price tag that's attached to that. But uh, whether it's whether it's venomous or it's a chondro, uh, you know, people usually gravitate towards the cheaper animal. But but a lot of the people uh, that that find value in the the other stuff, they will they will go for, for the other. But um, you know, I think it's it's at the discretion of of the keeper and the breeder um, to know what's going on in their collection. And yeah, you may be able to have a clean collection. Or you might be able to eradicate nidovirus in your own collection. Uh, let's just say you have nidovirus, but you segregate those nidopositive animals and then you keep your clean collection. You breed your animals that are in the night, you know, in your nido building or nido room or whatever it is. And you, you pull the eggs and, you, you know, you, you test the babies, you keep the babies away from the adults. I think that's a huge thing. Everybody says that too. You got to keep the babies away from your adults, but how many people are actually practicing what they preach? You keep those babies away from those adult animals, those breeders, regardless of the species. And uh, you may be able to uh, breed out nidovirus and have a nidovirus free collection of your own but I don't think we're going to get rid of it in general, but I think we can manage it effectively. I heard a comment on another radio show that said something about, um, well, the, the ball python group, you know, they had their cytovirus outbreak and they've worked through that and it's not a problem anymore, but I've heard of, uh, ball python collections crashing, and we, you know, we can't be certain that that's not due to nidovirus. I, I don't think it's it's a done deal with the ball python nidovirus problem either. And I think that you know a lot of, a lot of the reason that uh, Burmese pythons kind of went, you know, people stopped working with those whole, wholesale was because of potentially because of nidovirus. So I think it's, yeah, I, I think Cody's right. It's it's here to stay. We need to manage it. We need to we need to do things with with uh, knowledge and, and with foresight and, and planning, but we need to work together. Agreed. Yep, communication is key. And, um, and being transparent and talking to people and not getting an X stamped on your forehead if you have an issue. 
uh, and it's uh, we've we've been dealing with this for decades, probably maybe longer, and other viruses too, uh, and that you that you just have no idea uh, why that animal that was doing fine seemingly for yeah, since it was a neonate and no problems, and then just one day it was dead. I wonder why. And then it gets thrown in the garbage and no necropsy, no nothing, and you just assume that it just died. But these these animals, whether it's a green tree python or uh, that other species, can live over 20 years potentially. So why are they dying at four years old, five years old, six years old kind of thing? So uh, you just have to... Kind of dig dig a little deeper. All these people that'll spend two thousand dollars on a on a baby green tree python, but they won't they won't pay to get it seen by a vet if it has an ailment or if it dies. They won't pay for the necropsy. I think it's absurd. Agreed. Agreed. It's all it's about your herd health. You, you might lose one animal for for no apparent reason, but if you have a if you have any sort of sizable collection, if, you, if you're a avid collector or a breeder, if you're more than just somebody who has a pet corn snake and a 10-gallon in the, in the living room, you're just, <laughs> just a, a pet owner, you, you, you know, if something happens to one of those animals, you, gotta, you have to figure out what's going on. I, I mean, we've spent so much ridiculous money on necropsies and 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 vet visits and and things and believe me you know I'd rather spend that three fifty on something else I promise you <laughs> there's a lot of other things that I like to put that whenever we have an animal die I just ah oh, man you know but we we do it anyway you know you got to grin and bear it you got to send that animal in and if it comes back negative for all the known viruses that we're aware of and stuff well then you just eliminate those variables okay well it wasn't those it could be a new it could be a new something but it's not that something. And right. um, yeah, when we get, when we get that back, cause people go, yeah, I send my stuff to a vet and I still got a knee cross. got nothing back. And I'm like, man, well, I, I, I a sigh of relief when that happens. I, I, like Jim Wellahan, he's a great friend of ours. And one of the uh, Dr. Jim Wellahan, he's one of the best virologists on earth. And I love the guy to death, but he, gets excited about finding new viruses where when we take them in something goes, Oh, maybe it could be this. And I'm like, Oh no, not like, not that. Why are you excited about that? He gets excited about it. Like Pia said, we look for these things. That's why we find them. And um, yeah, sometimes I wish we didn't, but I'm so glad that we do because, because we know what we're dealing with. We have a, a, the finger on the pulse of our collection and it's about the herd health like i was talking about it's not just that one animal it, it could be you know if it was if it was just something that was a fluke that that's fine but if it was something that that could be really bad then at least we're ahead of the curve on, on the management plan thereafter all right we are wrapping it up guys and girls um I know I speak for Buddy when I say can't thank you guys enough for spending the uh, the time with us tonight. Uh, definitely, I think, one of the most informative, valuable shows that we could have uh, put out there to the listeners tonight. Thanks for including me. Yeah, thanks. thanks for having us. I, I hope one day we'll have a, a, a talk where we're not talking about NIDAVIRUS, so something <laughs> a little bit more serious. <laughs> I agree. Let's make that happen. 
Um, one more thing that I wanted to add, not about Nida virus or any doom and gloom. Uh, buddy, buddy, or not buddy, uh, Bill stole the, the, the thunder in the beginning about uh, giving the announcements for the Southeastern Carpet Fest. I was texting back and forth with Ian, and I was going to mention something, and then you did it, and that's fine. Yeah. But, 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 but one thing that you, that, uh, that you left out that Ian asked me to mention was um, for anybody that is going to attend or is interested in attending, um, hop on the Southeastern Carpet, Pytha, or Car- Carpet Fest uh, Facebook page and RSVP if you're going to go so they have a head count of who's going to be going. And uh, Absolutely. I said my piece. You guys yep. Absolutely. And we, right, we will be there. Great. Awesome. I'm planning on we going to well. talk non-Ida virus or anything else. <laughs> we were uh, we, we were joking we were jokingly talking because everybody uh, the southeast carpet Py, uh, uh, python um, fest group what you know, talking about the shirts and all of that and uh, we were talking about showing up with the 2018 southeastern nido fest shirts but <laughs> we, maybe that's I don't know if that's a little too much or not but uh, some people might, might see it funny early. some people. Yeah, too early. Yeah, too early. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, I mean we'll we'll definitely be there because if if we're not, I think that would probably be pretty bad since we are like four hours away from from where it's going to be held, if that. So we'll we'll definitely yeah. be if there. I, if I fly in from Texas, it, that would definitely make you guys look bad. Yeah, well, <laughs> hey, if you, I'll 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 bring by those Sri Lankan palm vipers because I know that you're you're eyeballing those, oh. but. Uh, all right. Yeah, you show me uh, show me how to take care of them. Get enough beers in me, and maybe I'll bring bring one home with me. There you go. <laughs> you have beer, to pre-handle beer, them uh, with pre Yeah, yeah. Beer, <laughs> beer and uh, and venomous snakes. That definitely makes. Actually, I couldn't give them to you here in Florida because you have to have a Florida venomous <laughs> permit. But I can I can ship them to you. And your your laws are a lot more lax than ours in Texas. Um, so you can definitely get them, Bill. And and if you. Uh, like I said, if you could keep a chondro, you could keep these. And uh, from what we've seen, we, you know, like Pia said, we tested those Sri Lanka palms. They don't have Nido, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm fingers crossed that, that they can't get it. So uh, fun little abort for you. We'll talk about. Bill it doesn't month. want them if we'll they talk. don't have Nido. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so Thank much, you guys. Good night. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Have a good night. You too. Okay, Bill, that was a pretty good show. Yeah, I think it was a real, a real good show. Um, yeah, very valuable. Got a lot of good information out there, and uh, hopefully, you know, quelled some of the panic that seems to be uh, 